This episode's reading of the Aramaic Targum can be found on my website, The Unexpected Cosmology. I'm excited to premiere my very own Restored Names edition, putting Yahuwah the Most High Elohim back into the Lord God. And that's the other thing. The bookstore is open. One of the ways you can support this ministry is by picking up your very own copy. I'll leave a link below. Shabbat Shalom, Hebrews and Shebrews. No man knows the day or the hour. And here I am. Uh, I do not have a baby yet, or I don't give birth to the baby. My wife does, and still no baby. So I wasn't sure if we were going to be meeting tonight, but uh, here we are. So <laughs> she's 38 weeks, and it could be, you know, I don't know if next week we'll have to cancel or the week after that, but I'm still going to truck, uh, keep trucking until that happens. This is, of course, the Diaspora of Yasharel. My name is Noel. I am here with Michael, and we will be going over the Genesis Targum. I do want to encourage everybody to check out the store at the Unexpected Cosmology. That's one of the ways you can help support my ministry. I have quite a few books on there. I've edited quite a few books, and one of them is the Genesis Targum. And for the Genesis Targum, I have restored the names of Yahuwah and uh, many of the patriarchs and, and throughout. And so you can go check it out. It's also on Amazon, but you can just go to my website and it's right there. So you can order it and, of course, follow along with our readings because this is going to be um, quite the study. I think there's about 50 chapters in Genesis, and I think we made it through the first eight verses last week. So we will see how long it <laughs> we'll see how many verses we get through this week. All right. I'm going to start reading Genesis chapter one and then. I will hand it over to Michael to start giving the first commentary. I'm going to go ahead and read the entire chapter again, not just starting from where we left off, just to give a full context, and then we'll go from there. So Genesis chapter 1, the Aramaic Targum. I am reading, reading from the Palestinian text. At the beginning, Yahuwah created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was vacancy and desolation, solitary of the sons of men and void of every animal. And darkness was upon the face of the abyss. And the Ruach of mercies from before Yahuwah breathed upon the face of the waters. And Yahuwah said, Let there be light, and to enlighten above, and at once there was light. And Yahuwah beheld the light, that it was good. And Yahuwah divided between the light and the darkness. And Yahuwah called the light day, and he made it that the inhabitants of the world might labor by it. And the darkness called he night, and he made it that in it the creatures might have rest. And it was evening, and it was morning the first day. And Yahuwah said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate between the waters above and the waters beneath. And Yahuwah made the expanse, upbearing it with three fingers, between the confines of the heavens and the waters of the ocean, and separated between the waters which were below the expanse and the waters which were above. 
in the collection or covering of the expanse, and it was so. And Yahuwah called the expanse the heavens, and it was evening, and it was morning the second day. And Yahuwah said, Let the lower waters which remain under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and the earth be dried, that the land may be visible, and it was so. And Yahuwah called the dry land the earth, and the place of the assemblage of waters called he the seas. And Yahuwah saw that it was good. And Yahuwah said, Let the earth increase the grassy herb which seed seedeth, and the fruit tree making fruit after its kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth produced grasses and herbage whose seed seedeth, and the tree making fruit after its kind, and Yahuwah saw that it was good. And it was evening, and it was morning the third day. And Yahuwah said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to distinguish between the day and the night, and let them be for signs and for festival times, and for the numbering by them the account of days, and for the sanctifying of the beginning of the months, and the beginning of years, the passing away of months, and the passing away of years, the revolutions of the sun, the birth of the moon, and the revolvings of seasons. And let them be for luminaries in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And Yahuwah made two great luminaries, and they were equal in glory twenty and one years, less six hundred and two and seventy parts of an hour. And afterwards the moon recited against the sun a false report, and she was diminished, and the sun was appointed to be the greater light to rule the day, and the moon to be the inferior light to rule in the night and the stars. And Yahuwah ordained them unto their offices in the expanse of the heavens to give forth light upon the earth and to minister by day and by night, to distinguish between the light of the day and the darkness of the night. And Yahuwah beheld that it was good. And it was evening and it was morning, day the fourth. And Yahuwah said, Let the lakes of the waters swarm forth the reptile, the living animal, and the fowls which flieth, whose nest is upon the earth. And let the way of the bird be upon the air of the expanse of the heavens. And Yahuwah created the great tannins, the Leviathan and his yoke fellow, which are prepared for the day of consolation, and every living animal which creepeth, and which the clear waters had swarmed forth after their kind, the kinds which are clean and the kinds which are not clean, and every fowl which flieth with wings after their kinds, the clean and the unclean, and Yahuwah beheld that it was good. And he blessed them, saying, Increase and multiply, and fill the waters of the seas, and let the fowl multiply upon the earth. And it was evening, and it was morning, day the fifth. And Yahuwah said, Let the soil of the earth bring forth the living creature according to his kind, the kind that is clean and the kind that is unclean, cattle and creeping thing, and the creature of the earth according to his kind, and it was so. And Yahuwah made the beast of the earth after his kind, the clean and the unclean, and cattle after their kind, and every reptile of the earth after its kind, the clean and the unclean, and Yahuwah saw that it was good. And Yahuwah said to the angels who ministered before him, who had been created in the second day of the creation of the world, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the fowl which are in the atmosphere of heaven, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every reptile creeping upon the earth. And Yahuwah created man in his likeness, in the image of Yahuwah, he created him with 240 and eight members, with 360 and five nerves, and overlaid them with skin, and filled it with flesh and blood. Male and female in their bodies, he created them. And he blessed them, 
And Yahuwah said to them, Increase and multiply and fill the earth with sons and daughters and prevail over it in its possessions and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the heavens and over every creeping animal that creepeth upon the earth. And Yahuwah said, Behold, I have given you every herb whose seed seedeth upon the face of all the earth and every unfruitful tree for the need of building and for burning. And the tree in which is fruit seeding after its kind, to you it shall be for food. But to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the heavens, and to every reptile upon the earth, in which is the living soul, I have given all green herbs. And it was so. And Yahuwah beheld everything he had made, and it was very good. And it was evening, and it was morning, the sixth day. I'm just going to read a few more verses. Chapter 2. We'll see if we get this far tonight. And the creatures of the heavens and earth and all the host of them were completed. And Yahuwah had finished by the seventh day the work which he had wrought and the ten formations which he had created between the sons. And he rested the seventh day from all his works which he had performed. And Yahuwah blessed the seventh day more than all the days of the week and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his works which Yahuwah had created and had willed to make. These are the geniuses, or I guess generations, of the heavens and earth when they were created in the day that Yahuwah Elohim made the earth and heavens. All right, over to you, Michael. <clears throat> All right, Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Uh, yes, the plan is to get to the seventh day, and that would be awesome. But <clears throat> like Noel said, we only got to like five the first day and we we lasted like an hour and 45 minutes so that's awesome we were, we were going deep um so my first two things are i've actually talked about in the first episode one i'm just going to reiterate and the other one i'm going to add to it so um, I, i'm going to start on verse seven i'll read the kgv it says uh and yah made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament and it was so and in the palestinian which is way different um, and Elohim made the expanse, upbearing it with three fingers between the confines of the heavens and the waters of the ocean, and separated between the waters which were below the expanse and the waters which are above in the collection or covering of the expanse. So, did you catch that? It said, Elohim made the expanse with his three fingers, or, you know, three fingers. The cross-reference I want to share is Exodus 31.18. So when he had finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, he, gave, he, Yahuwah, gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of Yah. So the firmament and the tablets with the commandments were written by the finger or fingers of Yah. So I know some, I forgot, it might have been Jubilee, say the tablets were made of sapphire, just like the firmament and the blue color. So I just wanted to highlight, again, the fingers we're doing at Palestinian seems to be similar to that Exodus passage where the Masoretic does not say that. Um, the next one, nothing else to add, but I want to reiterate it again. And that is, let's see, I'll read six through eight and then kind of comment on that. So I'm just going to read in the KGV. So. And Elohim said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And what I read just now, and Yah made the firmament, divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And Elohim called the firmament heaven and the evening and the morning were the second day. Um, again, I just wanted to highlight again that this day was not good. 
So the other days, it, it said it was good. What do you guys think about that? Um, why is day two not good? Um, but I also want to say again, like I reiterated last two weeks ago, for him not saying good is not, is not an omission. Omission implies that he just forgot to put it there. Um, it, it appears it was deliberately left out. Why? Um, we'll get to it hopefully day seven. It doesn't say it either. Is there a connection between day two and day seven? We discussed this for a little bit. Again, I'll just say it real quick. Both, in my opinion, are talking about the firmament. So uh, this is the talk about the firmament as it was being created. And then in Revelation, it uh, comes down, has to break through in the great eighth day. Um, maybe that's why. Maybe his the whole redemption plan was that, to where it was not good. He, he knew he had to break that in order to dwell with us again, spiritually speaking. What do you guys think? All right, uh, the next thing, this is the brand new stuff. So I'm going to start at number 10 and read the KGV. So it says, And Yahuwah, or Elohim, called the dry land earth, and a gathering together of the waters called he seas. Elohim saw that it was good. Okay, so I want to focus, let's see, that, that word for gathering, so gathering together of the waters called the seas, is actually mikvah, which might sound familiar to some of you. So mikvah, a.k.a. a collection, is a bath used for the purpose of ritual immersion to achieve ritual purity. So most forms of ritual impurity can be purified through immersion in any natural collection of water. Um, however, some impurities require living water, such as springs or groundwater wells. So let's see. The mikvah is designed to simplify this requirement by providing a bathing facility that remains in contact with the natural source of water. So some examples of mikvah in the Bible. So a kohen or priest who is being consecrated must be mikvah. The kohen gadol or the high priest on Yom Kippur, after sending away the goat to Azazel, and by the man who leads away the goat, must be mikvah. The kohen or priest who performed the red heifer ritual must be mikvah, and the one who wishes to become pure after contact with a corpse or grave. So I thought that was pretty cool that the first mikvah was in verse 10, where Yahuwah called the dry land earth and gathered the water together and made a pool and saw that it was good. So, so as I said, so far mikvah can mean gathering of waters or a bath for ritual immersion. But interesting enough, that word is used two other times with totally different meanings. So Jeremiah 14, 8. Oh, the hope of Israel, the savior thereof in time of trouble. That word hope is mikvah, or gathering. Why shouldest thou be as a stranger in the land, and as a wayfaring man that turneth aside to tarry for a night? Again, oh, the hope of Israel, or the gathering of Israel, the Savior thereof, in the time of trouble. He's going to gather you. Amazing. And another definition, 1 Kings 10, 28. And Solomon had horses brought out of Egypt, and linen yarn. The king's merchant received the linen yarn at a price. That linen yarn is the same word as gathering, as immersion, as hope. That's amazing. So to summarize, this word can mean hope, linen yarn, and the gathering of waters. Pretty cool. So what will be what will we be wearing once resurrected? Linen. Right? He's gonna gather Israel and the hope of Israel. And then we're going to be baptized. We're gonna be born again of her spirit. In the resurrection, it's the same word, but it's just used three different ways, three or four different ways. 
And also, it's interesting, the Greek word for linen, it might be linen cloth, is phonetically pronounced sin done. S-I-N-D-O-N-E. Sin is done. Uh, that's amazing to me when I found that out. Um, one more thing, and then I'll hand it off to Noel. I'm going to split mine, I think, three, three ways tonight. Um, I'm going to read 11 through 13. So, and you who has said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, and herb yielding seed after its kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after its kind. And Yah saw that it was good in the evening and the morning, the third day. Okay, so um, where do I want to begin? So <clears throat> I just wanted to point out that fruit trees and what I just read, seeds, were created before the sun. The sun has not come yet, according to this day model. How did this happen? What do you guys think? Was it the light in, in day one that is, is providing for these, these things? Did it even grow yet? <clears throat> I don't know. Um, but I wanted to point out, <clears throat> this could be my only Paul cross-reference, but um, 1 Corinthians 3 states at 5, What then is Apollos, <clears throat> and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but Yahuwah was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but Yahuwah causes the growth. I just wanted to say that, you know, he could easily say the sun caused the growth. He didn't. He said God did. Elohim did. Maybe Elohim was doing it before the sun, and then he made it just to, I don't know. But uh, that's what I got for the first part. As Noel said, we have a lot, I'm sure. So this is going to be great. Off to Noel. You know, I hadn't even, uh, well, I, obviously, I've contemplated on that many times before, you know, since I was time as a child that, you know, the sun hadn't come in yet, but I wish I had thought more about that today when preparing this, I was just thinking out loud, thinking out loud, I'm thinking out loud right now of a passage in third Baruch, where it talks about the, that, that there's like water up in heaven. I think it's in the fifth layer that Baruch talks about and how that water is only there based on the righteousness on the earth. and it you know if there's not righteousness then there's droughts and so on but that's what waters the earth i was just thinking about that about how when we get to revelation later on we we see that the sun and moon are actually there but they're not needed for for what we're talking about obviously uh the the light of yahuwah itself or it, perhaps even yahusha uh is obviously enough to do it all right so let's start back now starting out i'm starting in verse 9 which i think is where uh michael started we didn't actually pass this off where we're starting. I think we just happened to both start on the same verse. And I don't have a lot of depth starting out, but later on it's going to get, you know, we'll be taking the deep dive. So I don't need to read verse 9 and 10 a lot uh, again, but it is talking about, well, you know what? I will. This is what it says. And Yahuwah said, let the lower waters which remain under the heavens be gathered together into one place and the earth be dried, and the land may be visible, and it was so. Now, keep in mind, the firmament has already separated the waters above from below, so now they're being gathered in one place. And it's such a cool picture to see the land actually coming up out of the water. And then we see in verse 10, And you always said, Let the, the lower waters which remain under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and the earth be dried, that the land may be visible, 
Oh, I just read that twice. Okay, whatever. All right. So I think I was reading from verse 10. So let's compare this to what we've already read last week in Genesis 1-2. So keep in mind the picture here is that the water is, maybe you could say submerging, but the, the, whatever is happening is the land is coming up out of the water. It's almost like it's, 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 um, it's, I don't know, hardening. I don't, I don't know what the word is to use there. Like the water itself is, is, you know, creating the land. Well, this is what we already read in Genesis 1-2, and then we're going to compare this with one other passage in Genesis. And the earth was vacancy and desolation, solitary of the sons of men, and void of every animal. We don't need to get into that again. And darkness was upon the face of the abyss. Don't need to get into that again, but here it is. And the Ruach of mercies from before Yahuwah breathed upon the face of the waters. And then let's jump over to Genesis chapter 8, verses 1-3. through 3. The context here is that the flood has just happened. And Yahuwah in his word remembered Noah and all the animals and the cattle which were with him in the ark. Which is kind of interesting because in, in Genesis 1-2 there were no animals left. This time he remembers them. And Yahuwah caused the wind of mercies. So it doesn't say spirit of mercies. It says wind of mercies. To pass over the earth and the waters were dried. And the fountains of the deep were shut up. And the windows of heaven and the rain was forbidden to descend from heaven. And the waters returned from earth, from being on the earth, going and returning. And the waters were minished at the end of 150 days. So it seems like we're seeing something very similar to what is happening in the uh, first week of creation. Now, keep in mind, with, with the flood, it took much longer than a week to uh, subsidize the waters. Here it takes, it appears, a few days to do it. Now, I had to look this up. Yes, I'm going to be quoting from science. Let's see if I pass the geology test here. The ocean's crust consists of dense black basalt, which makes up what scientists, uh, put, uh, you know, quote-unquote scientists, call the mantle of the earth. It has been described as one might call a wet log in a river. But continental crust floats like a cork. I actually got that from like a mainstream uh, site. They say continental crust, quote unquote, floats like a cork. Interesting. Uh, I think there is more to the tides here than what they say with the moon, but we'll just leave that alone for the moment. The difference between earth and ocean rock is granite. So you got basalt and granite. Two perfect examples of granite rock is if anybody has been to Yosemite National Park and you go to Yosemite Valley and you stand there and you watch these waterfalls drop for 2,000 feet and it's just pure walls of granite and it is so breathtaking and beautiful. The other good example is Mount Rushmore in South Dakota. Granite apparently lifts the continents up, separating the land continents from the basalt ocean crust. Both basalt and granite are attributed to volcanic activity. And it makes me wonder if the first day of creation, when the Ruach of Mercies was hovering over the water, if there was a lot of molten heat and steam coming up. Just makes me wonder. You know, it's kind of interesting when you look at evolution that I used to get so upset at evolutionists because I'm like, oh, they're lying to us, all this kind of stuff. But very cleverly, the way evolution tells their story, it's almost like they're taking notes from Genesis and kind of lifting them up. We're going to see a little bit more of that in this chapter. Um, all right. So verse 11, 
And Yahuwah called the dry land the earth, and the place of assemblage of waters called he the seas. And Yahuwah saw that it was good. And it's so it's kind of interesting that according to mainstream science, now I have never been to the bottom of the ocean, obviously. I have never tested the, the soil myself, but they claim that it's kind of two types of soils, uh, the granite and the basalt, or the rock, I should say. So that is kind of interesting. And most people look at me funny when I attempt to explain to them what is the obvious here. Biblically, biblically speaking, that the earth is specifically referring to the land, but not the oceans. The Navy boys really don't like this one. <laughs> I can't, I've talked to Navy guys about this and they just like, what are you, what, you know, what are you tripping on? But specifically, when you're reading the Bible, it means once you're on the ocean, you're no longer on the earth. Say bye-bye to planet Earth. All right, and I'm going to just go ahead and read 12 because I think I, I get more into kind of depth of my commentary in, in verse 14. So I'll go ahead and just uh, go over this. And the earth produced grasses and herbage whose seed seedeth, and the tree making fruit after its kind, and Yahuwah saw that it was good. So I just want to point this out that all life comes from seeds. I know that is the most obvious thing to say. Uh, but it's one of those things once in a while in life, you just reflect on it. Like I had started out saying how I'm about ready to have, my wife is about ready to have a baby. Well, even with humans, babies come from seeds. That's absolutely incredible. Everything comes from seeds and that is proof of a creator. Also, I would like to submit, since I have the microphone for the moment, that spores are just another form of seed. They're everywhere in the air. You're breathing them in. If you ever walk through the woods, you're, bring, you're breathing in spores. If mushrooms are forbidden in Torah, as some insist, then we've got major problems because you're taking in those mushrooms all the time. And that's it for that. Back to you, Michael. All right, good stuff on the seeds. Um, I will pick up on 14. I'm going to read the KGB this time. So... And Yahuwah said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And so the Palestinian, like usual, is way off. And it doesn't mean it's not correct, but let's read that. So it says, let's see. And Yahuwah said, let there be lights in the expanse of heavens to distinguish between the day and the night. And let them be for signs and for festival times and for the numbering by them, the account of days and for the sanctifying of the beginning of months and the beginning of years, the passing away of months and the passing away of years, the revolution, revolutions of the sun, the birth of the moon and the revolvings of seasons. Okay, so what I wanted to point out is so in the Palestinians, the word distinguished in the KGV, it's the word divide. So I want to Talk about that. So Leviticus eleven forty six. This is the law of the beast and of the fowl, and of every living creature that moveth in the waters, and of every creature that creepeth upon the earth. To make a difference, same word as distinguish and divide, between the unclean and the clean, and between the beast that may be eaten and the beast that may not be eaten. So what this is saying is, you know. It's dividing the day from the night, the clean from the unclean, distinguishing the day from the night, clean and unclean. Leviticus 
That same word is the difference or dividing the unclean beast with the clean beast. Ezekiel 42:18. On the south side he measured 500 reeds with the measuring reed. He turned to the west side and measured 500 reeds with the measuring reed. He measured it on the four sides. It had a wall all around. The length 500 and the width 500 to divide between the holy and the profane. Same word. Distinguish, difference, divide. He was dividing the holy and the profane in the Ezekiel verse. I thought that was cool. So to summarize, distinguishing between the day and the night is equaling clean and unclean, holy and the profane in those other verses. He distinguished between the day and night. So if we are to be lights, it, does it mean are we to be clean and holy? I think it does. I think that's what that means. You guys think about that. Um, next, number 16. I'll read the KGV. It says, And Yahuwah made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And again, the Palestinian, it says, And Yahuwah made two great luminaries, and they were equal in glory twenty and one years, lest six hundred and two, and seventy parts of an hour. What? And afterwards, the moon recited against the sun a false report, and she was diminished. And the sun was appointed to be the greater light to rule the day, and the moon to be the inferior light to rule in the night and the stars. That's a huge difference. What do you guys think about that? Um, I'm going to focus on Jubilee chapter 6, which talks about this, at least elaborates a little bit more. So Jubilee chapter 6. I think it's at the bottom. I didn't put the verses. But if they do neglect and do not observe them according to his commandment, then they will disturb all their seasons and their years will be dislodged from this order. And they will disturb the seasons and the years will be dislodged and they will neglect their ordinances. And all the children of Israel will forget and will not find the path of the years and will forget the new moons and seasons and Sabbaths. And they will go wrong as to all the order of the years. For, for there will be those who will assuredly make observations in the moon, how it disturbs the seasons and comes in from the year to year, ten days too soon. The moon comes ten days too soon. For this reason, the years will come up upon them when they will disturb the order and make it an abominable day, the day of testimony, and an unclean day, a feast day, and they will confound all the days, the holy with the unclean and the unclean with holy. We just talked about that. For they will go wrong as to the months and Sabbaths and feasts and jubilees. For this reason I command and testify to thee that thou mayest testify to them. For after thy, thy death thy children will disturb them, so that they will not make the year 364 days only. 364. And for this reason they will go wrong as to the new moons and seasons and Sabbaths and festivals, and they will eat all kinds of blood with all kinds of flesh. Wow, what do you guys think that means? So KGV, pretty straightforward, Palestinian definitely adds way more and then that jubilee is what i just read chapter six if you guys want to check that out what do you guys think one more and i'll pass it off to noel here so number 21 again i'll read kgb and the palestinian um and yahuwah created great whales and every living creature that moveth which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind and after every winged fowl after his kind and yahuwah saw that it was good Palestinian says, of course, it's way different. And Yahuwah created the great Tannines, the Leviathan, and his yoke fellow, which are prepared for the day of consolation, and every living animal which creepeth, and which the clear waters had swarmed forth after their kind, the kinds which are clean and the kinds which are not cleaned, and every fowl 
which flieth with wings after their kinds, the clean and the unclean. And Yahuwah beheld that it was good. So I want to talk about, in pagan mythology, I was doing some research, there is usually a battle between gods, quote-unquote gods, and sea dragons. And they would use something like this. You know, they're talking about these great sea dragons that the Most High created. I want to show that scriptures picture Yah in total control, in, involved in no battles whatsoever. So, Job 7.12 states, Am I a sea or a sea monster that you set a watch over me? In Psalm 74.13, You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the waters. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces. In Psalm 148.7, Praise Yah from the earth, ye sea monsters in all the deep. And finally, in Isaiah 27, he will slay the sea monster that is in the sea. So, clearly, these scriptures affirm the providence of the Most High and reject the pagan idea of a constant battle between these gods, little gods, little g, and sea monsters. thought that was pretty cool. I still have a decent amount left on chapter one, but I'll hand it off to Noel. Yeah, you win a few verses there. I've got a lot of notes to keep, uh, catch up with you. And I will quickly say, since. I will get back to the the Tannin, the Leviathan, the Behemoth in a few minutes, obviously. But I do want to quickly say on that note is that it is interesting when you research the Leviathan that you come across a lot of Canaanite. Uh, I don't want, I don't want to call it mythology, but Canaanite religion uh, that you know that they will say that the Bible actually borrowed from the Canaanites, and that right there is is. I get so many people who they try to throw Canaanite stuff at me from Canaan and they will say, see, this is proof that the Bible was just made up from the people around there. And I have to say, whoa, 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 wait a second. Wait a second. L look at what's happening in Genesis. We'll get there in Genesis chapter 11. But, you know, I think it's in eight or nine, chapter eight, that the, the ark comes down. There's no other. It says three sons. Pretty quickly, there will be uh, Canaan. Who, which is a play on Cain, but I don't want to get there yet. And you see this this family um, dynamic. You see people going to Egypt. You see Babylon. You see you know everywhere. But they all come from Noah and his three sons. Well, who goes to Canaan? Shem does. Shem is there. That's where Mount Zion is. That's where he goes. That's where they go to bury Adam. He's he's taken on to the ark. They take his body off. They bury him there. And where does Abraham go? He goes out to Mount Zion, to Meshelzedek. And I have to imagine that uh, Abraham and Shem were highly influential to their children there, to the people there, including the sons of Ham who went there and you know took that land over. And I would imagine that the language that Shem spoke would, of course, we would see residue of that, which we do. You know, they will say that the Hebrew language came from, you know, the Canaanite. It's like, well, I kind of think that's a little bit reversed. So it's one of those things that either you believe the Bible or you don't. And if you believe the Bible, you could see how, you know, everything is flipped on its head. All right. So I'll be getting back into the uh, Leviathan here in just a minute. So where was I? I was on verse 14. Now, Genesis 1, verse 14, I, I want to I say to all my, my Lunar Sabbath friends out there that uh, I do not mean to disrespect you in any way, shape, or form, I will be talking about the Seventh-day Sabbath here because it is the creation week. And of course, I am a Seventh-day ministry, so I have a right to talk about it. People get really upset on the other side of the aisle when I 
you know, come to the defense of the seventh day like I'm not supposed to or something. But this, this verse right here, Genesis 1, 14, is one of those verses that the, the Lunar Sabbath crowd will, will use in conjunction with, you see what I did there, in conjunction with Leviticus chapter 23, uh, but also Psalm 104. To attempt to prove the Lunar Sabbath is the peripheral vision by which we are to go by. They assume that since Leviticus 23 lists the seventh-day Sabbath as a moed or, a, or a, a modim, that it must be set by the moon. And I just think that this is, this is one of the big arguments they use, and I think it's so unfortunate. They will say that the creation week, which shows by Yah's example, let me just, let me just say here, the moon appears on what day? It's the fourth day, correct? The, the moon appears on the fourth day. So what I see happening here is that the month begins on the fourth day. And there were three days before that showing that Yah is a setting example here that the weeks flow in and out of the months, in and out of the months. And, uh, you know, I, I really haven't been able to progress past the, the Genesis creation week because nobody can show me except for just, you know, kind of inserting kind of language in there to say, well, the, the first day of creation was really the second day of the month, and the seventh day was really the eighth day. But it doesn't say that. The seventh day is the Sabbath. It's not the eighth day of the month. It's technically the, uh, the third day of the month. Actually, no, it's the, uh, the fourth day. I take the back. It's the fourth day of the month. Anyways, where was I? Okay, so they will say that the, the creation week, which shows by Yah's example of work, um, how the seventh-day count moves in and out of the months and is unaffected by the moon being created on the fourth day, is the first day of creation, and this is what I ask, is the first day of creation really the second day, and is the seventh day really the eighth day? And they'll say, yes, but it doesn't say that. It, it, it needs to be redefined according to Leviticus 23. So uh, I, when, I, when I first started investigating the Lunar Sabbath, that's what I was taken to, Leviticus 23. Uh, I was taken there a couple of years ago, but a careful reading of the chapter shows, will show you th three ways, probably more, but three ways in which the seventh day is set apart. Number one, the appointed time of the Sabbath is the seventh day, according to Leviticus 23. I'm not going to read through that whole chapter. You can just, I'm referencing it. You can look it up for yourself. Number two, the modim that follows are clearly to be pro proclaimed as Sabbaths at their appointed time, which are on the days counted from the, um, the Kodesh new moon. You can see that happen in the transition between verse three and four. It is modeled after the creation week. The Sabbath, you know, is talked about first and then the, the Kodesh new moon. To give you an example, time and again, we see the language use in scripture saying Sabbath and the feast. If the feast days, the, the high Sabbaths, are already, if they already fall on the weekly Sabbath day by necessity, then that much would then be assumed. But the language use constantly defines the two separately. You wouldn't need to proclaim a feast day if it's automatically on the Sabbath day. Hopefully everyone can follow that logic. Number three, at the end of Leviticus 23, it reiterates that all of the, those feasts listed that are proclaimed by the moon are besides, the word besides, the Sabbath of Yahuwah on the seventh day. And this is what it says in verse 37 and 38 of Leviticus 23. These are the feasts of Yahuwah, 
which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire unto Yahuwah, a burnt offering and a meat offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything upon his day. Verse 38. Beside, the Hebrew word is uh, milibad, beside the Sabbath of Yahuwah, and beside your gifts, and beside all your vows, and beside all your freewill offerings, which ye give unto Yahuwah. All right. So the big takeaway here is, is I, I, when I look at the creation week, um, I, it, it's modeled here that the weeks flow in and out of the month. And I just, I just don't see it where the moon is, um, you know, already appears as though it's the fourth day. It doesn't tell me that. It just appears and the week was already there and the week ends before, you know, a few days into the month. All right. So this is where it gets really interesting in, in chapter one, verse 16. And Yahuwah made two great luminaries and they were equal in glory 20 and one years. So 21 years, uh, less 602 and 70 parts of an hour. That's as Michael said, that's kind of a little interesting there. I'd have to, I don't want to call that odd, but I, I haven't really looked into why they specify those numbers. And afterwards the moon recited against the sun of false report. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. All right, I had to mute somebody. Where was I? And afterwards, the moon recited against the sun a false report, and she was diminished. And the sun was appointed to be the greater light to rule the day, and the moon to be the inferior light to rule in the night and the stars. So I have a few cross-references to this. This is interesting. The first one comes from the Gospel of Bartholomew, chapter 4, verse 4. And this is, the context here is this is Kepha speaking with Miriam. This is the mother of Yahusha. Kepha saith again, O tabernacle that art spread abroad, Miriam saith, Thou art the image of Adam. Was not he first formed and then Hava? Look upon the sun, that according to the likeness of Adam it is bright, and upon the moon, that because of the transgression of Hava it is full of clay. Now, what, what she's saying here, is that the sun represented Adam, the moon represented Hava or Eve. And because of the transgression of Hava, it is it looks to be full of clay. For Elohim did place Adam in the east and Hava in the west and appointed the lights that the sun should shine on the earth unto Adam in the east in his fiery chariots. And the moon in the west should give light unto Hava with a countenance like milk. And she defiled the commandment of Adonai. Therefore was the moon stained with clay, and her light is not bright. Thou, therefore, since thou art the likeness of Adam, ought to ask him. But in me was he contained, uh, that I might recover the strength of the female. There's a view, you know, kind of taken out of context there, a little strange wording. But you get the idea here that what Miriam, the mother of Yahushua, is saying in the Gospel of Bartholomew is that the moon diminished. Well, in brightness because she transgressed. All right, well, here's another one from 3 Baruch, chapter 9, verses 5 through 8. This is Baruch speaking, or asking an angel, and he says, and again I asked, why is it that at one time increase, it at one time increases, he's talking about the moon, so why does it at one time increase, but at another time it decreases? And he, the angel, said to me, listen, O Baruch. Uh, by the way, the, the wording there, it, it, there's you know, a lot of debate on when the the month starts is it at the 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 waxing crescent or is it when it's a full moon 
I think both sides give excellent arguments, uh, but these extra canonical scripture passages I'm reading, to me, imply a waxing crescent is the beginning. Um, you, even here in the order, he says, why does it increase and then decrease? And the angel says, oh, Baruch, this which thou seest had been written by Elohim, beautiful as no other. And at the transgression of the first Adam, it was near to Samael when he took the serpent as a garment. And it did not hide itself, but increased. And Elohim was angry with it and afflicted it and shortened its days. Talking about the moon. And I said, and how does it not also shine always, but only in the night? And the angel said, listen, as in the presence of a king, the courtiers cannot speak freely. And so the moon and the stars cannot shine in the presence of the sun, which is kind of interesting. For the stars are always suspended, but they are screened by the sun. And the moon, although it is uninjured, is consumed by the heats of the sun. So, so let me repeat this line here. When the moon, and we're going to see what's happening here, is that the, the moon was ahead of the sun. All right? So um, we don't know how many days ahead of the sun it was. But you know how the sun will lap the moon once a month, right? So it's ahead of, the sun is about to lap the moon. The moon is ahead, and the moon looks down. Uh, the moon is feminine, a, a feminine spirit, or guided by feminine spirits, and looks down and sees what is going on with Hasatan and Eve, which we'll see uh, probably next week or in two weeks. And uh, it, it says, and it did not hide, but it increased itself. So now we've seen two accusations. The moon has increased itself, being, being like it kind of liked the gossip of what was going on and wanted to look a little closer. And two, it gave a false report. All right. This comes from Jubilees. And this actually makes it, this gets really interesting. Jubilees chapter 3, verse 26. I'm surprised Michael didn't read from this one. And after the completion of the seven years, which he had completed there, seven years exactly, and in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, the serpent came and approached the woman. And the serpent said to the woman, and it goes on from there. Now, I didn't line up the, um, the years and the months here with what the Targum says, I'd have to do that. But th this gives us um, a, a bit of information. It says that it, it doesn't matter if it's the first or second or third or fourth or fifth month, it's the second month, but it says in the 17th day. All right, let's see if I can actually put this in here. Now, I chose a, let's see if this comes in. Okay, I, I put in here a, a lunar chart. I chose a random month, it doesn't matter. I chose January, 2020. Uh, you could see the Gregorian calendar there. Now, I, I'm, a, I'm going to call it and say on Sunday, December 29th, that we have the, uh, the, the first day of, of the month. If we're going by, if we're not going by full moon, we're going by sliver, all right? So we're going to count up here 17 days. So... I'm going to go, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. If you're looking at this chart right now, it lands at about the 16th of January, where 17 days into this lunar month. And it's interesting because the sun is just about to catch up. It has another few days, but it's, it's pretty close to the moon. So that's kind of interesting. Now, if I were to go with the... The full moon being the new moon, 
then I'm going, let's see, count this up. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. I'm landing about January 28th. And that looks to me to be, um, you know, a sliver. It would actually be, um, at this point, it would be behind the moon. It wouldn't be in front of it. So you guys can use this as evidence yourself as you read these, you know, put all these books together and see what picture forms. I'm just putting this out here for your, um, just, you know, for your guys' own personal research. But all that to say, I, I'm I'm intrigued by both views, but it seems to me like the picture that is forming is um, is is one that now keep in mind too that he does say that the moon diminished, which seems to also imply that it was always a full moon. So that the the full moon actually um, the, the you I guess you could argue that many of these Moedims were instructed to come before Yah after the sin happens. I don't know. But maybe the moon was full and then it diminished in glory and it has to go through these cycles because of, of, of its sin, but also because of the sin of mankind and having to come and having to look at the moon to come before the Father. All right. I think that's as far as Michael got. So, oh no, he actually went up to the uh, Leviathans. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep plugging away. Uh, we see here in verse 20. And Yahweh said that the lakes of the waters swarm forth the reptile, the living animal, and the fowl which fly. It took me a long time to see this. This is in the, the Masoretic too, guys. The, it says that the reptiles and the living animals and the birds came up out of where? Out of the lakes of the waters. So again, that, that, that's kind of an evolutionary picture we're given i i just want to stress with everyone that i'm not an evolutionist i'm not advocating but they will always show you you know that the fish walking up out of the water and evolving but it it looks here like the majority uh, i don't know if every animal but the majority of animals came up out of the water not out of the land so that's interesting in and of itself all right now here's the 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 leviathan and behemoth part Chapter 1, verse 21, and Yahuwah created the great tannins, the Leviathan and his yoke fellow. I assume that the yoke fellow is the behemoth. Um, you'll see for yourself. All right, so uh, Michael talked about a few of these. I'll just repeat them really quickly. Psalms 104 says, there go the ships and Leviathan that you formed to sport with. Well, that's really interesting. That's a very fascinating picture of Yahuwah's character. He actually created the Leviathan to sport with it. Think about that. Now, as we go into this, I, my research has led me to believe that we're not just talking about a dragon here. Uh, th that's, th the Leviathan may be a giant dragon. I don't really know. But that's speaking purely exoterically. On an esoteric level, I have come to the conclusion that Leviathan is Sheol itself. It's Hades. It's death. So think about this as we go through this, okay? If I could, if I could insert Sheol instead of Leviathan every time, or death, whatever, and Sheol, uh, there go the ships and Sheol that you formed to sport with. And you'll say, well, what is Sheol doing in the in the ocean with the ships? Well, I'm not gonna, I'm not prepared to do a study on that tonight, but we have talked about that. How it it appears that Sheol really is in the ocean. Uh, I I think where the North Pole is actually. Psalm 74, 14. It was you, Yahuwah, who crushed the heads, plural, of Leviathan, singular, 
who left him as food for um, blah, blah, blah. That's really interesting. I'm not going to do a study there. I've done it in the past on how Leviathan has multiple heads, I believe seven heads. In Revelation, um, you know, a, a head gets lopped off and it becomes, it grows back as two more on the stump and it becomes eight heads, which goes back to ancient mythology as well. They talk about that. So basically you can't, the thing is, it's, it's like, if you can understand that Leviathan is death, even if you were to dismember his head, you can't conquer death. He just grows back more. That's, that's the story of death. Job chapter 3, verse 8 says, Let them curse it that curse the day who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Now, it took me a long time, of course, to see this too, that Leviathan in the context of Job is a, a representation of death. Um, so let's go, before we get into Job, let's read from 3 Baruch chapter 4. And you'll see more what I'm talking about here. Uh, Baruch is going through the heavens and this is what he sees. And I, Baruch, uh, he's actually in the third heaven right here, uh, which goes with everything that I've researched that, um, that the lake of fire uh, is in the third heaven. Um, we would say Gehenna, just as Eden or paradise is in the third heaven, just as New Jerusalem is in their third heaven. They're all there. And, and I, Baruch, said, Behold, Adonai, thou didst show me great and wonderful things, and now show me all things for the sake of Yahuwah. And the angel said to me, Come, let us proceed. And I proceeded with the angel from that place about 185 days. It's quite the journey. He's journeying through the heavens here, so it's a big place. And he showed me a plane and a serpent, which appeared to be 200 plethora in length. I'm not sure how big that is. It's very large, but he's seeing a serpent, okay? So for in this case, I'm going to ask you to take the serpent and just change the word to Leviathan, all right? Some people will say I'm cheating, but um, just follow my, my, my train of logic here. And he showed me Hades slash Leviathan, but it doesn't say Leviathan. It says Sheol or Hades. And its appearance was dark and abominable. And I said, who is this dragon? Leviathan. And who is this monster around him? And the angel said, the dragon is he who eats the bodies of those who spend their life wickedly, and he is nourished by them. And this is Hades, which itself also closely resembles him, and that it also drinks about a cubit from the sea, which does not sink at all. So it is here, it is attributing Hades, Sheol, to being in the sea and drinking the sea. That's really interesting. Uh, he's seeing things in the heaven, even though they're like things that are taking place on the earth, you know, as above, so below. Baruch said, and how does this happen? And the angel said, hearken, um, Yahuwah Elohim made 360 rivers of, I won't go on and read that, okay, but anyways, so there's that scene right there. All right, so let's get back to, to Job and think about Job 41 in the context of death itself. Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook, or his tongue with a cord which thou lettest down? Can any of you guys do this with death? Can you, can you guys conquer death? Canst thou put a, put a hook into his nose, or bore his jaw through with a, thor with a thorn? Will he make many supplications unto thee? Will he speak soft words unto thee? Death will do none of those things. Will he make a covenant with thee? Death won't make a covenant with you, but that's what, what people try to do when they pass their babies through the flames. Wilt thou take him for a servant forever? No. Wilt thou play with him as with a bird? Or wilt thou bind him for thy maidens? 
Shall the companions make a banquet of him? Shall they part him among the merchants? Canst thou fill his skin with barb irons or his head with fish beers? Lay thine hand upon him. Remember the battle, do no more. Behold, the hope of him is in vain. Shall not one be cast down even at the sight of him? None is so fierce that dare stir him up, who is then able to stand before him. Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his calmly proportion. Who can discover the face of his garment? Or who can come to him with his double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? That's really interesting. His teeth are terrible round about. His scales are his pride. Shut up together as with a close seal. As we're going to see in the next uh, passage I'm going to read, there's a lot of pride with Leviathan. Um, with death itself, of course. Um, one is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together. They cannot be sundered. By his, uh, I guess that's Nisings, a light doth shine, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lamps, and sparks of fire leap out. Now, it sounds like, Ken, you can imagine a dragon with, with fire um, coming out of its mouth, but think about this in the terms of Sheol, too. Uh, out of its nostrils go a smoke. That's interesting, the smoke of, you know, that, of their torment that ascendeth forever. As out of a seething pot or cauldron, his breath kindleth coals, and a flame goeth out of his mouth, and his neck remaineth strength, and sorrow is turned into joy before him. The flakes of his flesh are joined together, they are firm in themselves, they cannot be moved. His heart is as firm as a stone, yea, as hard as a piece of the nether millstone. When he raiseth up himself, the mighty are afraid. By reason of breakings, they purify themselves. The sword of him that layeth at him cannot hold the spear, the dart, nor the, um, I guess that's uh, Habergeon. I don't know what that is. He esteemeth iron as straw and brass as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Slingstones are turned with him into stubble. This is quite the dragon, guys. <laughs> this is... <laughs> this is like beyond Jurassic Park here. Darts are counted as stubble. He laugheth at the shaking of a spear. Sharp stones are under him. He spreadeth sharp pointed things upon the mire. He maketh the deep to boil like a pot. The deep to boil like a pot. Another ocean reference. He maketh the sea like a pot of ointment. He maketh a path to shine after him. One would think the deep to be uh, hoary. Upon earth there is not his like. So he who is made without fear. So it's saying that he's not on the earth. Remember, we're classifying the ocean from the land. He's in the ocean. He's in the deep uh, where Sheol is. He beholdeth all thing, high things. He is a king over all the children of pride. All right. Now, follow my, my train here of, of logic. We've, we've looked at Baruch. We looked at Job. Now we're going to look at Jonah. Jonah is put into the belly of a great fish. Some would say uh, tannin, which is perhaps a reference to Leviathan himself. Okay, so when he's swallowed up by a great fish, it is indeed Leviathan in the belly of Leviathan that he appears to be in. And you'll see for yourself in his prayer. Meaning that Jonah's dead, guys. He, he, went, he died and he went to Sheol and he's praying in Sheol. This is what he said. Then Jonah prayed to Yahuwah his Elohim from the belly of the fish, saying, 
I called out to Yahuwah out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. So what is he doing in Sheol if he's in the ocean in a fish? And you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the hearts of the seas. The very heart of it, guys. And the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds are wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. So it's, again, he's given this picture. There's like weeds wrapped around his head like he's in the belly of fish. But then he says he's at the roots of the mountains. Well, that's interesting. I went down to the land whose bars close upon me forever. The bars, like the teeth that come down that, you know, you can't put a fish hook in that, right? You can't open it up and it's come down on him forever. He's in there. He's done. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Yahuwah, my Elohim, when my life was fainting away, I remembered Yahuwah, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who, pray, who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to Yahuwah. And then, and Yahuwah spoke to the fish, and it, or the tannin, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And it's kind of interesting there that he says that those who regard vain idols, the lesson here is that um, those who don't repent, they're going in there forever, and they're not going to be resurrected. Jonah was resurrected. Nobody talks about that. That's really exciting. All right? I'm still, I'm still going on the, down this rabbit trail. So hang with me, guys. Thank you for hanging in there. And now for the Gospel of Nicodemus. The scene here is that Yahusha has died, and he's going down to Sheol. He's going down to what I believe is Leviathan. So David is speaking in Sheol, and he says, While David was saying this, the mighty Adonai appeared in the form of a man and enlightened those places which had ever before been in darkness. So Sheol has always been in darkness, now there's light, and broke asunder the fetters which before could not be broken. He's talking about the gates, the teeth of Leviathan. He shatters them. And with his invincible power visited those who sat in the deep darkness by iniquity and the shadow of death by sin. Impious death and her cruel officers, hearing these things, were seized with fear in their several kingdoms. I don't know what their several kingdoms are. That's kind of interesting. Uh, that just stuck me, uh, struck out at me. When they saw the clear, clearness of the light, and Mashiach himself, on a sudden appearing in their habitations, they cried out therefore and said, We are bound by thee. Thou seemest to intend our confusion before Yahuwah. Who art thou who has no sign of corruption? But that bright appearance, which is a full proof of thy greatness, of which yet thou seemest to take no notice. Um, and then they talk about the king of glory has come. I'm going to skip some of this because it's a long-winded speech. Um, and it's all about the king of glory coming in. And it says, Then the king of glory, trampling upon death, seized the prince of Sheol, deprived him of all his power, and took our earthly father Adam with him to his glory. Then the prince of Sheol took Satan and with great indi indication said to him, O thou prince of destruction, author of Beelzebub's defeat and banishment, the scorn of Elohim's angels and loathed by all righteous persons. And then he goes on and he scorns Satan and it goes on and on and on. Um, and then, let's see, while the prince of Sheol was thus speaking to Satan after another long-winded speech, the king of glory said to Beelzebub, the prince of Sheol, 
Satan, the prince shall be subject to thy dominion forever in the room of Adam and his righteous sons who are mine. So basically he's saying like where, um, where Adam went, that's where he can go. Then Yahuwah stretched forth his hand and said, come to me all ye my saints who were created in my image, who were condemned by the tree of forbidden fruits and by the devil and death. Live now by the wood of my cross. The devil, the prince of this world is overcome and death is conquered. The gospel of Nicodemus. All right, a few more passages here. This comes from Enoch chapter 58, verses 7 through 10. In that day shall be two monsters whom became separated, a female monster whose name is Leviathan, dwelling in the depths of the sea above the springs of water. Uh, I guess the springs of the deep, I think. That's what it's talking about. And a male monster whose name is Behemoth, which possesses, moving on his breast, the invisible wilderness. What in the world is the, invis is the invisible wilderness? That's a question that I have never answered. His name was uh, Dindayin, which is probably a clue. I need to look that up. In the east of the garden, where the elect and the righteous will dwell, where he received it from my ancestor, who was man from Adam, the first of man whom Yahuwah uh, of spirits made. Then I asked of another angel to show me the power of those monsters, how they became separated, how they became separated on the same day, uh, which would have been this day of creation, one being in the depths of the sea and one in the dry desert, and that goes on from there. And um, I have one more I'll read here. I have a couple more, but I'll read one more from Second Esdras. Chapter 6, on the fifth day you commanded the seventh part where the water had been gathered together to bring forth living creatures, birds and fishes, and so it was done. The dumb and lifeless water produced living creatures as it was commanded, so that therefore the nations might declare your wondrous works. Then you kept in existence two living creatures that you created. Now this is kind of interesting because it, I, I don't know what it means by then you kept in existence two living creatures that created. Did they, according to this, pre-exist before that? Because that goes in with the uh, whole Canaanite uh, religious, uh, I guess, mythology. Um, that, you know, they came out of the primordial chaos. The one you called Behemoth and the name of the other Leviathan. And you separated one from the other for the seventh part where the water had been gathered together could not hold them both. This is how big they are. They're huge. And you gave, so they're, we're not talking about, they're so big, guys. We're not talking about dragons or dinosaurs. Like, they're, they're so big, the, the waters cannot contain them. And you gave Behemoth one of the parts that had been dried up on the third day to live in it, where there are a thousand mountains. So another clue to the hidden wilderness. But to Leviathan you gave the seventh part, the watery part, and you have kept them to be eaten by whom you wish and when you wish. Um, so what is this hidden wilderness? Some people have suggested North America. I, I'm going to throw the, the moon map out there, guys. I think there's... Uh, you know, there's, there's, it, it's the land is where like the righteous inhabit. And I have a lot of notes on that that I'm not going to go over tonight because that's a whole nother uh, rabbit trail. But uh, here's to close this before I hand it back to Michael. A Jewish rabbinic legend describes a great battle which will take place between them, uh, Behemoth and Leviathan. Apparently, uh, the, the male and female don't get along when they meet at the end of time. This is what he says. They will interlock with one another and engage in combat. With his horns, the behemoth will gore with strength. The Leviathan will leap to meet him with its fins, with power. Their creator will approach them with his mighty sword and slay them both. Then from the beautiful skin of Leviathan, Elohim will construct canopies to shelter the righteous who will eat the meats of behemoth 
and the Leviathan amid great joy and merriment. So it sounds a lot like King Kong versus Godzilla, the last war of the Titans. And also to point out here that if we are to eat Behemoth or Leviathan, that uh, they have to be clean creatures. It does say Leviathan has scales and uh, Behemoth would have to chew its cud and have um, a split hoof, I guess. So with that, I'm handing it back to Michael. Oh, that was great stuff. I knew you had a lot on Leviathan and Behemoth. He had many a Thursday night show and articles. So I'm glad you elaborated on that. <clears throat> um, I'm going to finish off on chapter one. I still have a decent amount, but I'm going to do that now. So 26 and 27. Um, let's read the KGV. So it says, And Yahuwah said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth among the earth. So Yahuwah, or Elohim, created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female, created he them. <clears throat> so, before we go into my notes, i got to read the Palestinian. And of course, it's way different. Which one is true? Leave that up to you guys. Palestinian says, And Yahuwah said to the angels who ministered before him, who had been created, in the second day of the creation of the world. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish, fish of the sea and over the fowl, which are in the atmosphere of heaven, and over the cattle and over all the earth, and over every reptile creeping upon the earth. And Yahuwah created man in his likeness, in the image of the Lord. He created him with 248 members, with 365 nerves, and overlaid them with skin, and filled it with flesh and blood, Male and female in their bodies, he created them. Way different. Did, did Palestinian take some liberty? Most likely, but <laughs> what do you guys think about that? That's way different than the normal KGV. Even the other uh, Targums, let's see, which one was that? Stayed pretty much on script. Let me see, what number was that? 26 and 27. Yeah. Um, okay, so now my notes here. So... Let's see. So verse 126. So I'm going to talk about two separate words, uh, verbs. So in, in verse 126, it, the, there's a verb that says make. So let us make man in our image. That word is asa. Whereas in the verb in verse 27, where is that? So God created man in his image, bara. So bara was also used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, Elohim created, or bara, the heaven and the earth. So I was doing some research, and bara always refers to Yah, or Elohim, never to a man. However, Asa can refer to either Yah or to a man. So in creating man, Yah employed both verbs. So also, up until this point, Yah had been using the term, let there be. So let there be light, let there be blah, blah, blah. Now there's a change here where he says, let us make, which appears to show this to be a unique, momentous event a different kind of creation. So he created everything else. Um, you know, stars, the, the seeds, the fruit, the firmament. But this one is, is a little bit different. So I'm sure you guys have your own <clears throat> ideas on that. So also in the phrase, let us make man. So everybody knows this. The Hebrew word for man is Adam or Adam. This is a general term meaning mankind, including both male and female. Contained within that name, of the first man on earth is the Hebrew word 
Dam, D-A-M, which actually means blood. So this is not a coincidence. So since Yah tells us often that life is in the blood, he, you know, the root of Adam is blood. It's pretty cool. Um, <clears throat> so also in the Hebrew, a man is called Ish, and a woman Isha, the feminine form of Ish, Ish. So Yah uses this term when he woos Israel and promises the time when Israel will regard him with fond affection rather than stand at arm's length from him, viewing him as a stern authority figure. So the famous verse, Hosea 2.16. It will come about in that day, declares Yahuwah, that you will call me Ishi, and I will not, no longer call me Baal. Um, and then after that, so after let us make man in our image, it talks about in our likeness. So the next phrase, or actually, no, let us make man. So the next phrase will be in our image. That Hebrew word is Tzelem, T-Z-E-L-E-M, Tzelem. This phrase can refer either to an original image or, an, or to an imitation and can be used both in good sense and a bad one. So in a good sense, it appears as it does here, where man is created in the image of Yah. Here's the bad sense. So it is used to refer to idols or imitations in such passages as Numbers 33:52, 1 Samuel 6, 5, 2 Kings 11, 18, for example. It's also used for less concrete elements than the word image. For example, Psalms 39, 6 says, um, the word is used, that word is used of a phantom in parallel with vanity. And in Psalms 73, 20, it parallels with a dream, like a sense of unreality. So the image could be the image of God, yeah, idols, uh, vanity, dreams, unreality. That same word could be used for good or evil. Makes me think of Revelation, where it's the mark of the beast and the image of the beast. What is that? Um, okay, so I know Josh is big on this, and we'll probably open it up and we'll talk about this. But whether this was Adam and Eve or another race, if we assume somewhat of a light being, even though you know the word itself appears to be blood, are we in our current state, let's say assume they're light beings, are we in our current state made in the image of God? Or... Will we be when we're resurrected and get our mortal bodies like Adam was? He wasn't resurrected, but he was, if some people think he was made as a light being and he lost it in the fall, whether you believe that or not. So something to think about. So that's what I want to point to you guys. You know, you hear that right away. You're like, oh, yes, yes, we're definitely made in the image. He's talking about Adam. He's talking about this first man. Are we made in the image now? We're in that fallen state. Obviously, there's a protection. Obviously, we're in covenant, all that. But the image of God appears to be, we're working out our own salvation. Once we get resurrected and we're made complete, that's when we're in our image of God? I don't know. Leave that up to you guys. Uh, two more quick things, then I'm done with chapter one. So number 31, it says in the KGB, <clears throat> And Yahuwah saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Did you catch that? It was very good. So... Five of the other days, four of the other days just say they were good. Two didn't say it was good. Day six, it was very good. What do you guys think about that? Why? Was that when that's when man was created? Is it talking about just the sixth day or creation as a whole? My guess would be because man was created that day in his image. So it was very good. Um, and then finally, real quick, some parallels of the first six days. Um, day one, light. We talked about that, Yeshua. Day four, sun, moon, and stars, lights. Day two, sea and skies were created. Day five, 
fish and birds were created. Parallel. Finally, day three, land and plants were created. Day six, animals and humans were created. I thought that was pretty cool. Different. It goes in order. First three, di first three days, kind of a foundation. Day four, the living, you know, sentient beings um, for the most part. That's all I got for chapter one. That was a lot of notes for me <laughs> coming from John and James and Jude. But I hope you guys enjoyed it. We still have a little bit left in chapter two, but I'll hand it off to Noel. He can finish this out. All right. Thank you, Michael. That was really good. Now I have to find where my place was. Okay, I think I am back on Genesis chapter 1, verse 24. So let me see if I can catch up here. And he who has said, let the soil of the earth bring forth the living creatures according to his kind, the kind that is clean and the kind that is unclean. That's what it means. What, what the Targum is saying there, when the Masoretic says, according to his kind, there are the clean and unclean cattle and creeping thing and the creature of the earth according to his kind and it was so now there are going to be people out there who are going to kick and scream at this because their entire notion of clean and unclean is something that happened at sinai and then that was done away with it, it i heard a uh i've heard stories my, my wife of course is pregnant as you guys know she's 38 weeks we're about to give birth i have heard stories my elder brother used to be an EMT and he was telling me how uh, stories of like women who would walk into a hospital because they had, um, I don't know, bowel issues or indigestion or whatever. And their boyfriend brings them in and they come out with they a big, all right. I had to cut someone out. And, the point here is how how is it that somebody <laughs> I don't know if these stories are true or not, but how could somebody, you know, get to nine months, deliver baby, and not even know they were pregnant? All right. This is what, what we say being out of touch with our bodies to a great degree. Well, this is how out of touch I was with the world around me. It it wasn't until I came to Torah where I was like, Oh my goodness, and you start, you know, you go to the aquarium. I would take my children to the aquarium and I would show them the fish. And I would say, look at, look at those fish there. What's on those fish? And my, my children would say scales. I'm like, that's right. Yeah, the scales. And they, they look like a kind of fish you could eat. You know, they look like a plump, uh, like the cattle of the sea, you know, a cow of the sea or whatever. And then you look at the, the shellfish and the, the ones without scales. And what are they doing? They're sucking up the ground, you know, cleaning. And they're the cleanup crew. And you go out to nature, you see the same thing. You see the clean and the unclean. And they all have their job, and Yah is basically like, look, don't, don't eat those unclean. They're, they're here for a purpose. They're the cleanup crew. Don't eat those. And it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, this is how he created the world to be. And so I love this passage here in uh, Genesis 1.24, where it just, it just specifies that there has always been clean and unclean. This is not just a made-up thing for the Sinai covenant. This is when you come into a covenant with Yah, you're going to agree to treat his animal uh, kingdom, I guess you could call it, as he wants it to be treated. You can go eat a clean animal. You know, that's what a rabbit, uh, I think a rabbit, yeah, a rabbit chews its cut and has, you can eat, you can eat, I've never eaten a rabbit, so I guess I've never checked, but <laughs> uh, you, that's what a rabbit is there for. That's what cattle are there for. That's what sheep are there for. But that's not what an owl is there for. An owl is not there for you to eat. So 
Since we're on this subject, uh, wanting to point this out, I will take people to the Book of Acts because on YouTube land and other places, people will say, they always say, but Peter's vision. And in fact, uh, Rob Skiba, when he was still with us, he was, the, I've said this many times before, he was the person, he took a phone call with me. He was the person that convinced me by personal phone call uh, the Torah was the way to go, uh, to be obedient to the Father. And I'm always so grateful that he invested that time in me when very few other people would. And the question I brought up to Rob, <laughs> I was like, yeah, but what about Peter? And I could just like, I could hear it on the other end, like, oh, I have to go every day for the rest of my life answering this question. So I'm going to ask you guys all to reevaluate this really quick. I'm going to take you through this to show you that nothing has changed since the creation. There has always been clean and unclean. It wasn't a Sinai thing that was taken away at Pentecost. Um, and here's what we read in Acts chapter 10, verse 19. It says, while Peter, or you could say Kepha, thought on the vision, remember the vision of the animals on the sheet, the Ruach said unto him, behold, three men seek thee. So put a, put a bookmark right there on it, three men. Then Kepha gives the interpretation of the, the dream. He does it how many times? Three times. So it sounds like the number three is really important here. Acts 10, 28 says, And he said unto them, Ye know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Yahudim to keep company or come unto one of another nation. But, pay attention to this, Elohim hath showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean there it is that's that's the vision the vision isn't about animals it's about people in uh verse 34 it says then kepha opened his mouth and said of a truth i perceive that elohim is no respecter of of animals no of persons and again in the following chapter when he retells the story to the other apostles this is what we read acts 11 um and I heard a voice saying unto me, Arise, Peter, slay and eat. But I said, Not so, Adonai, for nothing common or unclean hath at any time entered into my mouth. So this is where, this is where people run with this. They're like, see, it's a, it was about animals. But they, they don't keep reading. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What Elohim hath cleansed that call not thou common? And this was done three times. And all were drawn up again into heaven. And behold, immediately there were three men. So it happens three times. And then three men come, already come unto the house where I was, sent from Caesarea unto me. So Peter interpreted the meaning of his own dream three times. Yahuwah had used the fact that Kepha was hungry to illustrate a point. Never did Kepha eat of unclean animals. Rather, he thought on what the vision or the dream he had been given three times meant and three men showed up and the meeting became obvious to him it was always about people he says so it was that elohim is not a respecter of persons all right moving on that had to be said uh genesis 1 26 and yahuwah said to the angels who ministered before him who had been created in the second day of the creation of the world. Wait, what? Well, first of all, we can just throw this out. So no Trinity then. 
Yahuwah is not speaking to himself. Um, you know, it's not three dudes up in heaven that is one Elohim and they're like, I don't know, talking a three-way. Yahuwah is speaking with his divine counsel. But wait, the angels were created on the second day? That's a little confusing. That's not what Jubilee says. Let's read Jubilees real quick. Chapter 2. And the angel of the presence spake to Moshe according to the word of Yahuwah, saying, Write the complete history of the creation, how in six days Yahuwah Elohim finished all his works and all that he created, and kept Sabbath on the seventh day, and hallowed it for all ages, and appointed it as a sign for all his works. For on the first day he created the heavens which are above, and the earth, and the waters, and all the spirits which served before him. The, uh, so there it says right there, on the first day he created um, oh, all the spirits which served before him. And let's keep following this line of thought. The angels of the presence, and the angels of sanctification, and the angels of spirit of fire, and the angels of the spirit of the winds, and the angels of the spirit of the clouds, and of darkness and of snow, and of hail. These are all angels, by the way. The darkness, the snow, the hail. Uh, it keeps going on. Of uh, hoarfrost, and the angels of the voices, and of the thunder, and of the lightning. So that's kind of, <laughs> that's, that's kind of cool. They're like the thunder and the lightning. They're two different angels. And the angels of the spirits of cold, and of heat, and of winter, and of spring, and of autumn, and of summer. And of all the spirits of his creatures, which are in the heavens and on the earth, he created the abysses and the darkness, even tide and night and light, dawn and day, which he had prepared in the knowledge of his heart. And there you go. So is the Targum incorrect on this? Did they get it wrong? You know, did, uh, or is Jubilees wrong? Okay, I'll let you guys think about that. However, um, the Genesis Targum may again help clarify. Uh, I will argue that these angels who he's talking to here to create man in his image is referring specifically to the 70, not all the other angels. And Jubilees actually doesn't mention the 70, but, and here's why I say this. And we're going to go jump ahead a few chapters to Genesis 11 in the Targum. And this is what it says. Oh, and the context is, as you guys uh, probably know already, the Tower of Babel. And Yahuwah said, Behold, the people is one, and the language of all of them one, and this they have thought to do, and now they will not be restrained from doing whatever they imagine. And Yahuwah said, To the seventy angels which stand before him, hmm. Come, we will descend, and will there commingle their language, that a man shall not understand the speech of his neighbor. And the word of Yahuwah was revealed against the city, so Yahusha himself, and with him 70 angels having reference to 70 nations. So these are identified as the 70 angels who um, uh, had were given control of the 70 nations when Yahuwah disowned or disinherited humanity at Babel. He said, here you go. He gave them to the 70 angels. And, you know, what's also interesting here is that, which this is actually a, a, an amazing uh, uh, plan, historical plan. I didn't put down here, but in Enoch, it also talks about the 70. They're known there as the 70 shepherds. And when Yahuwah uh, divorces Israel, it, just like he, as he did humanity at Babel, he he hands them over to the 70 angels, the, the called the 70 shepherds, and he says, take care of them, and uh, I'm going to be taking tabs, and if you do anything that you're not supposed to do with them, if you injure them, if you 
hurt them, kill them. I'm, I'm going to be holding you accountable. And then it says when they were handed over Israel that they started doing all those things he said not to do. So the 70 is also who I believe Yah is speaking to in Psalm 82, his divine counsel. The passage takes us right back to Sheol and Gehenna and Leviathan again. Um, so the, the Leviathan was, oh, and it's, it's interesting that, so according to the Targum, if these 70 were created on the second day, that is also the day that he divided, um, you know, heaven from earth with the firmament. Kind of interesting. The Leviathan was created after the angels, but the angels who preceded this sentence of death can very well die like men. That's according to Psalm 82, and this is what it says. A Psalm of Asaph. Elohim presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the Elohim. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? So he's actually, he's, he's called his assembly in front of him, his divine council. He's speaking to other Elohim. And he's saying, you guys are ruling over mankind. But he says, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak now he's saying, look, you need to defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. These, these 70 Elohim, they're not doing that. The Elohim know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are Elohim. You are the sons of the Most High. But you will die like, like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O Elohim, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Um, so that's kind of interesting there at the end. A lot of people will say that these Elohim are like uh, the souls of mankind, you know, before we came into our bodies or whatever. There's different things, but it says right there at the end. He's, the, the, the Asaph is saying, rise up, O Elohim. He's talking now to the most high Elohim of Yasharel, Yahuwah. He says, judge the earth. Because these other Elohim are doing this. They're, they're, they're causing, you know, they're leading wickedness. And he says, for all the nations are your inheritance. You can have this. By the way, I think that these, um, the 70 angels, uh, these 70 Elohim have been dealt with. I don't think they're among us anymore. All right, let's see what else we got here in Genesis. Oh, this is a good one. Genesis chapter 1, verse 29. And Yahuwah Said, Behold, I have given you every herb whose seed seedeth upon the face of all the earth. This tripped me out the first time I read this. And every unfruitful tree for the need of building and for burning. That's not in the Masoretic. I'll repeat that again. He is giving at the creation of the earth. You know, keep in mind, he's already, he's already given us Sheol. He's already given us Leviathan. He's given us a lot of things that, you know, that are you know every every king they've when they build a castle they build the dungeon right because they know people are going to rebuilding it rebel against them uh he gives a tree of of life the tree of knowledge of good and evil and he says every unfruitful tree for the need of building and for burning unfruitful is the key word and isn't that interesting how christmas trees are unfruitful trees they don't produce fruit we are expected to bend down and present it with gifts or receive gifts from it and yet there is a spirit to christmas that's not the Ruach HaKadosh. That spirit is, uh, you know, connected to an unfruitful tree. Something to consider. And we see a cross-reference to this, the, uh, the trees for burning, in the Gospel of Matthew. So let's read through this. This comes from 
chapter seven, I believe. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go into it. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth into life, and few there be that find it. Unfortunately, in Christianity, they, uh, I don't know, I've spoken to so many Christians, they say that this verse is no longer applicable. That's really scary. The people feel that they're like, they get it. They're like, they're on the wide path. They're like, well, the narrow gate must not exist anymore. I've had people tell me that on, on this Discord page. And this is what he goes on from here, a tree and its fruit. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes or thorns or figs or thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Not every one that saith unto me, Adonai, Adonai, or I'll just say here, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And uh, so that's kind of really interesting that in the creation week, he's given us fruitful trees and unfruitful trees, and saying that the only thing those trees are worth is burning. You could build with this as you could build with it too, like houses and stuff, which is what pine trees are used for. All right. And that's all I have on chapter one. I've got a few more notes on chapter two, but I'm going to hand it back to you, Michael. All right. Great stuff. You mentioned 70 and I have to mention this. I don't have this in my notes, but I, you know, I love numbers and it depends what you think of the text because there's different numbers in both passages, but in Exodus 1, um, now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Okay, so, and then Luke. If you guys have been following me, you know I love Luke. Um, someone's making noise. Okay, um, thank you. Uh, chapter 10, verse 1 through 4. After this, Shua appointed, now here's the issue, 72 or 70, some verses say 70, others and sent them two by two ahead to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, uh, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Asked the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Um, this before it's still a it's still a work in progress. But my my you know basically we're scattered now. So Yeshua is talk is had why seventy why seventy now? I thought he had twelve. He appointed seventy to go find the lost sheep to bring them back into the fold. You go back to Exodus. Joseph and his family were 70. They pulled people out of sin, out of Egypt, and 
they became Israel. It, there's a parallel there with the number 70, I think. What do you guys think about that? And if you know my theory, Luke is to the set apart. I still believe that Luke's to the set apart. Um, the other two, they're, the, you know, the, the churches are speaking to different sets of believers. I believe the gospels are as well. And Luke is to the set apart. So it's, it's that job to go find the lost sheep and bring them back into the fold. 70, 70. All right. So I have a decent amount on only, we're only going to read the four verses in chapter two. It's talking about the seventh day. I have a decent amount. Um, let's get, let's get onto that. So real quick, I'm going to read it again. And the creatures of the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were completed. And Yahuwah had finished by the seventh day the work which he had wrought, and ten formations which he had created between the suns. You know, there's some chatter in the in the chat earlier about the suns, and I'm sure Noah will talk about more about that. And he rested the seventh day from all his works which he had performed. And Yahuwah blessed the seventh day more than all the days of the week. And he sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his works, which Yahuwah had created and had willed to make. These are the the genesis of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day of the Lord God made the earth and the heaven. Alrighty, let's go here. So let's see, I'm going to focus on number two. So, and on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had made and rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. So there's a textual variant of this Genesis 2.2. So that reads, Yah finished on the sixth day rather than Yah finished on the seventh day. So the Samaritan Pentateuch, the Syriac, and the LXX support the alternate reading. They support, and Yah finished on the sixth day. Why does the Masoretic say on the seventh day? The most plausible reason I've found is it's a desire to present the Most High as engaged in nothing but rest on the seventh day. So this implication is that he doesn't, he doesn't anything on the seventh day, that it's not properly a day of rest. I lean that he finished on the sixth day. That just makes sense. Why does the KGV v say the seventh day? Um, let's see what the Palestinian says. No, he sa says the same thing. Okay. Um, so Jubilees talks about this, Jubilees 2. And the angel of the presence spake to Moses according to the word of the Lord, saying, Write the complete history of the creation, how in six days the Lord God finished all his works, which goes with those other variants. Masoretic is incorrect. Jubilees even goes with the, this this variant. And all that he created and kept a Sabbath, Sabbath on the seventh day and hallowed it for all ages and appointed it as a sign for all his works. Praise Yah. Okay, so that word rested, he rested on the seventh day. Again, I'm not talking about the root word. I'm talking about how it's used in this verse. It's only used one other time. Um, that's Joshua 5. So 10, and the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month. At even in the plains of Jericho, and they did eat of the old corn of the land. And on the morrow, after the Passover, unleavened cakes and parched corn in the selfsame day. And the manna ceased. The manna ceased. That word ceased is rested. On the morrow, after they had eaten of the corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna anymore, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So, the manna ceased on the morrow after they eat eat so they eat let's see i'm trying to do the math here so kept passover on the 14th day they eat of the corn of the land the morrow after the passover unleavened cake starts unleavened bread the manna ceased the manna rested just like yah did on the seventh day and then it talks about the first fruits so i know there's a big and i'm still i'm, I'm a noob on the calendar i really am 
I, I you know, I'm doing the Zadok. I have friends that I really trust that know what they're talking about. But how would they get around this part? Maybe I think Wendy's in the chat. How would you get around this part where the it's literally talking about the day after? Like I know in the Zadok, it's talking about uh, basically ten days after. It's the Sabbath after the the next Sabbath. But um, so yeah, question there. Palestinian Targum two two says a little bit different, of course, right? And oh, we already talked about that. And the Lord had finished by the seventh day the work which He had wrought, and the ten formations which He had created between the suns, multiple suns, and He rested the seventh day from all His works which He had performed. Two things, obviously the suns. Um, I don't know who's going to talk about that. What do you guys think about that? That that moon map is actually a decent idea. That's very that's very good. But what could the ten, what are the ten formations? What do you guys think about that as well? All right. Um, so my next thing I want to talk about. This is, these are just four verses, but we I'm sure Noel and I have a bunch. Melaka and Avodah. So there's, the biblical Hebrew has two words to express the difference of work and work. So, and I did not come to a conclusion on this, but I thought it's a good word study, and I'll you know I'll present that. Melaka is work as creation. And avodah is work as service or servitude. So it's particularly important to note that melaka has the root malak, a word that means messenger, representative, of, and even an angel. So this is someone who comes in the authority of another. So strongs, that word is strongs, H4397. Deputyship, ministry, employment, that's never servile. Um, result of labor, business, cattle, industrious. Occupation officer. Okay, so the creator looks back at the creation of the universe as the Melaka, which he had done. So what he created, which he had done. A phrase repeated three times in these in two verses, Genesis 2, 2, and 2, 3. So making everything qualifies as Melaka. What he created was Melaka. So the Bible, and of course, I'm going to talk more about this. I talked about it in the first Targum series about the difference or the similarities between the creation and the tabernacle so this is just another part of that the bible characteristically describes the work of the building the tabernacle as melaka right down to the completion of the project so and Mo moses finished the melaka exodus 40:33. so the work of the building the tabernacle cutting the wood specifications writing the mark the pieces plowing the ground to grow plants catching the animals to make the skin covering shearing the sheep Weave the fabrics, cutting, sewing, constructing. These qualify as melaka. That's awesome. Avodah is a different kind of work. So H5, 6, 4, 7. Work of any kind, act, bondage, bond, servant, labor, ministering, service, tillage. So in some verses, the word avodah means work, as in to work in the field and to do common labor. So M Moses renewing the covenant with Yah says, in Exodus 34, six days you shall work, or Avadah. Psalms 104, this, then man goes out to his work, or Avadah, to his labor until evening. Genesis 2, which we'll get to next time, 15. And Yahuwah, God, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Avadah, work the till, work the till, work the ground. That's Avadah, that's not creating, you're working. Okay, in other verses, Avadah means worship. As in to worship you, O God. So, Exodus 8. This is what Yahuwah says. Let my people go so that they may worship or avudami. 
Joshua 24, 15. But as for me and my household, everybody knows this. We will serve the Lord. We will avodah the Lord. This is a powerful image to think that the word for working in the fields is the same word used for worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So a life where work and worship come from the same root, the same foundation. So how, so this is, I, I was trying to figure out because I got in some rabbinic articles and they were trying to make the case that and I, don't, I totally disagree with this, that Avodah, you can do Avodah on Sabbath, but I don't see that. Uh, that but I'm, I'm still pointing, put, putting this out there that there's two separate things for work and how does it relate to the Sabbath? So how do both of these words and work relate to our Shabbat? I'm not entirely sure, but I'm going to put that out there. So if you guys want to do word studies, Melaka and Avodah. I still have a decent amount on the rest of the first four verses, but I'll end enough to know. <clears throat> what chapter did, what verse did you end on? Did you end on verse? I uh, just four. Okay. All right. Well, let's get to it then. Chapter two, verse two, the 10 formations, which he had created between the sons. I do have a theory on this. Now I'm not going to talk about between the sons, I do find that really fascinating. I brought this up to the group, brought it up to Michael. Um, that what if we are? There's two ways you could look at this. The most, the most no duh obvious would be that it's it's just talking about the nighttime that the sun, uh, you know, it, it it goes around and comes back again. So you're between the suns, like you know, the bookmarks of the sunset sunrise. But another possibility is that it is saying. That there are more than one sun, and you and people will be like, "Well, but no, how can that be? That sounds ridiculous." Is it really? I don't know. I I have those questions myself. There, you know, we live in a very strange realm, and I assume that you know my listeners are not Copernicans, thinking that we are on a spinning ball hurtling through a Kabbalah vacuum of space. Um, and when you start to look at different maps, like the moon map, you can very easily imagine that there could be two suns, and there are instances all throughout history where two suns do appear in the sky at the same time. Sometimes it is down in the Antarctic region, sometimes in uh, places like in uh, in Rome. I think it was right around 70 AD that there were uh, there were sightings of two suns at once around Rome. That's really interesting. I'm not going to go into all that. What I do want to touch on, though, is the ten formations. I do have a theory on this. I think the ten formations are referring to ten firmaments. Uh, there is the obvious uh, firmament that was created on the second day, the, what is also known as the vaulted dome of the Earth. But for those of you who have followed my research, I uh, do think that there is scriptural evidence in multiple books to show that we are actually living in a like a building uh, would be the best way a tower maybe uh, I don't want to use the word skyscraper because that's like very post mud flood but uh, if you can imagine that we are on the first floor uh, below us is the basement that would be Sheol and then above us there are uh, seven heavens there's actually ten there's actually 10 firmaments, and I'm going to show you. This comes from Second Enoch. Take it for what it's worth. Now, there are multiple books that do talk about the seven heavens. Uh, Third Baruch is one of them. The Ascension of Isaiah is my absolute favorite. I love that book. That is a great confirmation for the seven heavens. Here is Second Enoch. Again, take it for what it's worth. And Gabriel caught me up as a leaf caught up 
the wind and placement before Yahuwah's face. Uh, he is on at least the seventh floor by this point. But if you can imagine, so basically nobody really goes beyond the seven floors, uh, except for a very few choice few. Uh, you know, Yahuwah gets the penthouse on top. Nobody goes up there. Uh, to my, maybe he'll invite people up there. I don't know. I'm sure the Ruach HaKadosh, Yahusha goes up there. But like that's that's his. That's where he wants to go, where a king wants to go for his privacy. And I saw the eighth heaven, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Muzaloth, changer of the seasons of drought and of wet and of the 12 constellations of the circle of firmament, which are above the seventh heaven. So you know, one of the mysteries here as I try to work this out is like, why is it that like we see the sun, the moon, the constellations below the first firmament, but then they talk about, you know, they're like storehouses and all different. So it seems like what it's saying, the residence of the... Um, the 12 constellations, the Zodiac, the 12 gates um, is, you know, the, 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 the kind of like the, the spirits behind them, so to speak, they're up in the eighth. And I saw the ninth heaven, which is uh, where are the, which is called in the Hebrew uh, Kuchavim. I, I was going to skip that because I'm going to mispronounce it anyways. Where are the heavenly homes of the 12 constellations of the circle of the firmament? On the 10th heaven, which is called Erevoth, I saw the appearance of Yahuwah's face like iron made to glow in fire and brought out emitting sparks and it burns. Thus, in a moment of eternity, I saw Yahuwah's face, but Yahuwah's face is ineffable, marvelous, and very awful and very, very terrible. And who am I to tell of Yahuwah's unspeakable being and of his very wonderful face? And I cannot tell the quantity of his many instructions and various voices. Yahuwah's throne is very great and not made with hands, nor the quantity of those standing around him, uh, troops of cherubim and seraphim, nor their incessant singing, nor his immutable beauty, and who shall tell of the ineffable greatness of his glory? And I fell prone and bowed down to Yahuwah, and Yahuwah with his lips said to me, Have courage, Enoch, do not fear, arise, stand before my face into eternity. And that would be on the tenth heaven. So that is my theory there, that when they talk about the Ten Formations, that's, um, that's what I think they're talking about. I'm not 100% positive, but food for thought. All right, Genesis 2-3. And Yahuwah blessed the seventh day more than all the days of the week and sanctify it, because in it he rested from all his work, which Yahuwah had created and had willed to make. So I just want to point this out. Obviously, the seventh day was sanctified and holy from the beginning not just for Moshe at Mount Sinai. Okay, this this was not like like <laughs> we like we used to do the seventh day, but now we do the the first Roman day because we're now we're under a different covenant. No, no, it's it's always been this way before Sinai. It's in the first chapter of the Bible, people. Just want to point that out. All right, now this this is going to be kind of a to to close this tonight. I'm going to take several minutes of your time before handing back to Michael. Genesis 2-4 has what I call a Todoth mark. Now, the first book of Torah, in my opinion, may be compiled by as many as 20 different authors. Now, people immediately are going to say, that's, that's heresy, Noel, it's, it's Moses. Well, yeah, Moses did write the Torah. He wrote Genesis, but that's not what I'm saying. I actually have a theory that the, the writer of Jasher uh, which means the book of the just and Moses, like the, the writer of Jasher was not sourcing Genesis. 
I have a theory that he was actually sourcing a book which Moses was sourcing, or books which he was sourcing, which no longer exist. The same way when you think about Luke, when he's right, Dr. Luke, and he's writing his gospel, that he's sourcing multiple different people. He's, he's, you know, people will claim he's sourcing Miriam, the mother of Yahusha, amongst other people. Same thing with Moses. So it's really quite fascinating when one stops to consider that uh, in Mesopotamia, we'll go back there again, Can, uh, Canaanites, a religion, the whole Mesopotamian region, they're, they, they're, they have these tablets which contain what we call colophon phrases. Colophon phrases, if I'm pronouncing that right. And these are at the end of their respected stories, which would essentially include the name of the tablet's writer. So a colophon phrase always ends the story. It's kind of like watching a movie which promptly says, the end. I'll give you a Star Wars example. I gave one last week. You, you, you're watching a Star Wars movie. It hits the climax. You know, all the actors are either facing the camera on stage, which symbolizes victory. If their backs are turned to the camera, it symbolizes defeat. But then it quickly, the screen wipes and it says, um, you know, uh, written by Lawrence Kasdan, uh, directed by so-and-so, so-and-so, executive produced by George Lucas. Let's just say it's just written and directed by George Lucas, right? That would be the Toldoth mark. The story ends and it tells you everything that you saw before this moment was written by this person, directed by this person, produced by this person. The, so the scores were you know, composed by this person. That's a Toldoth mark. All right. So Toldoth is the Hebrew word for generation, as in these are the generations of such and such person. That's a Toldoth mark. We see it in the first one happens in Genesis 2.4. Genesis contains over a dozen such transitions. The very first Toldoth phrase, as I just mentioned, occurs in Genesis 2-4, when Moses, Moses records, these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. Let me see, what does it actually say specifically in the Targum, just so I get this right? Um, these are the generations of heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that Yahuwah Elohim made the heavens, when the earth and the heavens. Now, I, I say Yahuwah instead of the Lord. I, 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 you know, I, they separate here between uh, clearly Elohim and, and the Lord, Yahuwah. So the Masoretic, interestingly enough, never uses the name of Yahuwah in the first chapter. That's kind of interesting. It doesn't actually name him, to my understanding, until the second chapter. Um, just something to consider. Let's see, where was I? Okay, so that basically right there, that ends a story. Okay, so Moses is saying, okay, I source this material from Elohim. All right, this is the story he told. Now it, it starts a new story. Who's going to be sourced? Genesis 2.5, which we'll get to next week, begins a second creation account. And, uh, you know, this is the two, what we call the two creation contradictions, which I'll get to next week. And surprise, surprise, they actually don't contradict each other. But an entire gener and entire generations have argued over these implications. Why are there two uh, creation accounts? Were there two atoms? What's going on? The second told off phrase occurs in Genesis 5.1, I believe, when Moses records, this is the book of the generations of Adam. So if this theory holds any water, if it's true... And I, I, it's the best I've ever, explanation I've ever heard. Moses is telling us that he's gleaned this information, everything from Genesis 
24251 from a book apparently written by Adam, which would no longer exist. I'll rephrase this so as to spare possible confusion. Though the first creation account was written by and from the perspective of Yahuwah Elohim, the second creation account starting in Genesis 2.5 was written from the perspective of Adam. All right. The third told-off occurs in Genesis 6.9, and we'll get to them in the following weeks, but I just want to give you a heads up now. These are the generations of who? Noah. So, Noah. Those who dismissed the sons of Elohim. Um, let's see. Well, let's just skip there. Okay. The, then, okay, so that's in 6.9. Then quickly, the fourth told-off in Genesis 10.1. This is where it gets really interesting, putting the test to the theory. It says that this is the generations of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So why is it before these are the generations of Noah, but now these are the generations of him and his sons? Once again, understanding the identity of four separate contributing authors clears up a lot of confusion. Because we can now understand why there are so many repeated phrases in chapter 6 and 7. Chapter 6 and 7, at least in the Hebrew Masoretic, I don't know about the Aramaic Targum, um, are considered one of the most repeated chapters in the Bible. Um, and I think it's because Moses is actually comparing notes from all four of them. Moses, I'm not Moses, Noah and his three sons. Uh, the Fifth told-off phrase in Genesis 11.10 belongs solely to Shem. So we had Noah, then we had Noah's three sons, then Shem. And this time it's kind of interesting because when you read that, it's, it's all about the, the, uh, the genealogies. And so you get this sense that Shem was all about recording his family. He's sitting there going, okay, I've got like all these great, 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 great grandchildren and all the, and he's recording them and putting them down. And, uh, uh, Moses is picking that up and he's uh, he's reading it. I mean, this is this if this theory is correct, this shows the tragedy of what we've lost in history. All the books and other things, all the things that were recorded um, that are gone. They're probably in the Vatican Library or somewhere. Who knows? The sixth told off phrase can be found in Genesis eleven twenty seven. Uh, it says it includes the days of Peleg and ends abruptly with the author's death. Uh, the author is a mysterious Terra, the generations of Terra. We don't know who that guy is, to my understanding. The seventh told-off phrase chronicles the life of Abraham and yet, yet ends in Genesis 25, 19 with, and these are the generations of Yitzhak, Abraham's son. So if this is correct, then Yitzhak would be recording his father. Uh, an eighth very short told-off phrase is inserted to Genesis 25, 12 and is attributed to Ishmael. That's interesting. A ninth is Genesis 32.19, and it is attributed to Yaakov. A tenth is in Genesis 36.1, and it's attributed to Esau. That's interesting. And it's, that is all talking about Esau's family. So Moses is taking the writings of Esau as he's chronicling his own family, and he's given him the credit. And finally, after another great length, an eleventh told-off phrase is attributed to the twelve sons of Yaakov in Exodus 1.6. So, uh, the way the way I look at Genesis as we're going through this is that we are actually looking at a family quilt. Each, you know, you've seen this before with quilts, right? Where like different mothers and grandmothers and daughters, like they will add to the family quilt. It's the same thing. We are looking at the story that originated with Elohim through Adam, comes all the way down. And Moses is saying, look, this is our story. These are our descendants. They're our forefathers. And they all told the story. And I am assembling this for you and putting it down on paper. All right. So that's my, uh, that's my theory on this. 
And this concludes my commentary for the night. So, Michael, back to you. <clears throat> All right, I'll finish this off and then we'll open it up. Um, I'm going to talk primarily on the Sabbath, but before I'm going to before that, I'm going to do a little bit more on day seven and or the days, and then the sim, day seven and the similarities with Exodus Tabernacle, like I mentioned earlier. So. Genesis 1, 31, we just read it. And Yah saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Exodus 39. Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it, as the as Yah commanded. So had they done it, then Moses blessed them. Genesis 2, 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Exodus 39, 32. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the people of Israel did according to all that Yahuwah had commanded Moses. So they did. Genesis 2, 2, and on the seventh day, God finished his work, what he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. Exodus 40, he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court, so Moses finished the work. Genesis 2, 3, so Yah blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, Yah rested from all his work. And Exodus 39, 43, and, uh, and Moses saw the work, and behold, they had done it, as the Lord commanded, so they had done it, and Moses blessed them. And then they rested, too, on the tabernacle. All right, so now I'm going to talk more about a Sabbath, right? So this is, day seven is a Sabbath. You guys know the Genesis model. You know Exodus talks about it as a sign. Um, I'm going to talk about some other verses in the canon and extra biblical and uh, about the Sabbath that you might not have known. So um, <clears throat> Leviticus 16.31, Yom Kippur is stated to be the Sabbath of Sabbath. Isaiah commends honoring the holiness of Sabbath rather than using it to go one's own way or to do idly as one pleases. Jeremiah declaims against carrying burdens out of the houses or out of the city gates on Sabbath, as was commonly done by the merchants in his day. <clears throat> Psalms 92 is a song specifically for Sabbath, if you want to read that. <clears throat> Nehemiah observes many kinds of business transacted on Sabbath, rejects it as profane, locks the city gates for the whole of Sabbath, and has them guarded and threatens force against merchants who spend the night outside. Sabbath begins after evening shadows fall on the gates. In Acts, the distance from Mount of Olives to Jerusalem is called a Sabbath journey. And now some apocryphal, 2 Maccabees. So there's a few in here. So 5, 25. A Mysian captain named Apollonius attacks all those celebrating Sabbath. Did you know that? 2 Maccabees 6, 6. Antiochus criminalizes Sabbath and ancient fasts, and those keeping Sabbath secretly in caves are burned to death. Antiochus. Um, in 2 Maccabees 8, 26, after defeating Nicanor's army, the men of Judas Maccabeus leave off pursuit on preparation day, instead of gathering spoil, occupying themselves about the Sabbath, and praising and thanking Yah. After Sabbath, they distribute the spoil to the maimed widows and orphans, and themselves and their servants. Judith, also apocryphal. In 8.6, Judith fasts and lives in a tent for three years and four months, or 40 months. Interesting number. Except for Sabbath Eve, Sabbath, New Moon Eve, New Moon, and feasts and solemn days. And finally, in the Damas Damascus document, Dead Sea Scrolls, um, let's see, Sabbath is said to begin, and again, I don't, I'm not sure I believe this, but said to begin from when the setting the sun is above the horizon by its diameter. Any discussion of business or commerce on Sabbath 
is specifically forbidden, as is house cleaning, opening a container, or taking anything in or out of one's house. The limit of walking outside one city is set to 1,000 cubits, or 2,000 cubits of following a herd animal. Again, this may be rabbinic. One may bathe and drink water directly from the river in seven, but not fill a container with water. Again, take it with a grain of salt. That's the Damascus document about the Sabbath. Then finally, I just want to share some quotes, and a lot of you know this. People who were against it and or changed it. So the famous Roman Emperor Constantine, he enacted the first of the law regarding Sunday observance. The law did not mention the Sabbath by name, but referred to a day of rest on the venerable day of the sun. So on the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrate and people residing in the cities rest and let all workshops be closed. In the country, however, persons engaged in agricultural work may freely and lawfully continue their pursuits because it often happens that another day is not so suitable for grain growing or for vine planting. Lest by neglecting the proper moment for such operations, the bounty of heaven should be lost. Again, Roman Empire changed it to Sunday observance, the Sunday. Yet, it's interesting, those in the cities had to do that. A lot of us are fleeing the cities. I don't know. Maybe it ties in with Ohad laws and stuff like that. And Ignatius, cautioning against Judaizing, in the epistle of Ignatius to the Magnesians, what he, what he talks about, Let us therefore no longer keep the Sabbath after the Jewish manner, and rejoice in the days of idleness. Let any, every one of you keep the Sabbath as a spiritual manner. Don't we hear that a lot? Oh, you know, they spiritualize the Sabbath. Rejoicing in meditation on the law, not in relaxation of the body. Admiring the workmanship of God and not eating things prepared the day before. Nor using lukewarm drinks and walking within a prescribed space. Nor finding delight in dancing and plaudits, which have no sense in them. And after the observance of the Sabbath, let every friend of Christ keep the Lord's Day as a festival, a resurrection day, the queen of all the chief days. So he's speaking directly against Yah's laws, everything. So he's saying you don't need to, you don't need to be idle. Um, let's spiritualize it. Let's meditate on the law. Don't care about relaxing your body. Um, admiring the workmanship of God. Not eating things prepared on preparation day. Lukewarm drinks, walking within prescribed space. You can travel wherever you want. Not define finding delight in dancing. A lot of the Shabbats out here, people love to dance. He says, no, that's not good. So I just wanted to end it there that, you know, Ignatius was totally against it. Um, that's what I got. So I guess if Noel is done, we can open it up. Or if you have any comments on that, Noel. Yeah, you kind of triggered me with Ignatius. Yeah, that guy... <laughs> <laughs> that guy was bad news. Um, but yeah, we gave a lot of information tonight. And, and undoubtedly, when that happens, I mean, Michael and I probably gave like 30 bullet points each. And undoubtedly, when that happens, there's always, you know, one or two bullet points out there where, you know, you're going to someone, you know, everyone in the crowd's going to like, you know, boo to that uh, point. And um, but hopefully we gave you a lot of things to th think about and i uh, hope this was informative for everybody so yeah we're gonna open this up now thank you everyone for being here and just listening what what stood out to you guys do you guys have anything specifically that uh, came to your attention don't all rush me at once 
Or if you guys had questions on the first episode, since you guys can watch that on YouTube. Hi, thanks for going through all of this. There was a, a couple things that stuck out to me. And um, one of the things that I thought was kind of profound is um, when you had mentioned about Jonah um, and being Sheol that you oh. thought maybe was in the ocean. And um, my husband and I were sitting here pondering on that. And uh, he, you know, because in Jonah, it says that he had cried from the depths of Sheol. And it was kind of interesting to me that, you know, that, uh, you know, a whale, because we, we know that, um, you know, Jonah died because that was what the, the um, that Yeshua had said that that was what the sign was, the three days and the three nights. And I thought that was really interesting that when he was crying from the depths of Sheol and he was in the ocean with the whale. And um, my husband came up with a thought of um, one of the movies of the Pirates Caribbean and saying that that's where the pirates came up from was from the waters and called uh, the Davy Jones locker. So as we were listening to you about um, Jonah, we looked it up on Wikipedia where it talks about Davy Jones locker and it says that it's a metaphor for a bottom of the sea, the state of death among drowned sailors and shipwrecks. Um, it is uh, used as a euthanism for drowning or shipwrecks in which the sailors and the ships remain. And um, it also went down, like talks about like different books that were written in the 1700s about uh, this Davy Jones locker and how it's referred to like the devil and um, and that and you had mentioned something about kind of being up by like um, the North Pole. And it said in some of these books that um, that the definition had included the devil, the spirit of the sea called um, Necken or Dragar in the northern countries such as Norway, Denmark, and Sweden. So that's kind of what set out. Uh, thought that was very curious, you know, as we were listening to you on that. So um, yeah, I thought that was really profound uh, for me. And then the next thing um, I would just share, and then I'll get off here, um, is when you were talking about the Leviathan. And I guess it's just like a quick question: is that if if we are thinking that Le Leviathan and Behemoth um, if if uh, the millennium had already happened, because uh, I know it says in Second Baruch uh, 29 that um, three to four that the behemoth it says um, behemoth shall be revealed from his place and Leviathan shall ascend from the sea. Those two great monsters which I created on the fifth day of creation and shall have kept until that time, and then they shall be for food for all that are left. And then it also in Psalm 74, it says, uh, you divided the sea by your strength. You broke the head of the sea monster in the waters. You crushed the head of Le Leviathan. You gave him as food for the people in the wilderness. And then uh, lastly, Second uh, Ezra 6, and thou hast kept them to be eaten by whom thou, thou wilt and when they thou wilt. I guess just I, I was pondering the thought that if, the millennial kingdom had already happened. Maybe this is why we don't see behemoth and Leviathan today, because maybe they've already been eaten. I don't know. Just a thought. Thanks uh, for the um, commentary tonight. Yeah. So those are really good thoughts that I think about myself. And I, I do really speculate that uh, at the time that I believe the earth was scorched and I, you know, I've taken everyone through the research and showing how you could see that the earth was scorched with fire, melted cities, all sorts of stuff that, that might've been the good time when the, 
that happened, you know, talking about the hidden wilderness where Behemoth is. That it says where the righteous lived. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, where is that hidden wilderness today? Does it ex- does it exist? I think it's still there, um, but it's hidden, right? And that's the amazing thing about our realm. It's like we we have no accurate maps. You know, on a glow, if you go by a globe perspective, and and you want to argue like globe Earth versus flat Earth, like if you're gonna, you know, they will they will laugh at our map at the AE map, and it's like, well, if that's our map, we're gonna argue with you. Got to pick what one map are you gonna choose? Because there's like like fifty, I don't know, thirty, I don't know how many. There's a lot. Like there's no accurate globe Earth map, and that's the thing about Rome. We really, you know, when when Yahua said to Job, can you measure the breadth of the earth? The irony, guys, is that we still don't know the breadth of the earth. We don't. We don't nobody's measured it. Um so yeah, so I don't I don't know where Behemoth is. Um I, I suspect that it might have happened. I did I did want to really point out one quick thing that you had said that you probably didn't intend, uh, but I want to use as a really great point. It says that it was a fish that swallowed a Jonah, and you said whale. And that's one of the big, you know, naughty no-nos in Sunday school. You know, they'll tell you, no, it, it wasn't a whale, it was a fish. But I want to use that to point out that, um, you know, the Bible doesn't go by our modern scientific classifications, all right? They, would, they will say that a whale is not a fish because it's a mammal, right? It has hair and so on and so forth. But that's that's not a biblical classification. For example, it would we, they would also say that uh, that we are mammals uh, and that we're like the monkey is a mammal. Well, according to the Bible, they would I they would call the monkeys or the the gorillas the beast of the field. That's a completely different classification than humans. Um, and this is one of the tricks of evolution and how they kind of blend us all together. So I just wanted to point out that, uh, a, a, in my opinion, a fish is, could very much be a whale. Um, even though they say that, you know, you can't go to a, a marine biologist and say a, uh, a whale is a fish. They will correct you on that. But biblically speaking, I think it is. So, um, yeah, but I don't have an answer yet on, on whether or not that event happened, and I suspect it did. Anybody else? Yeah, David Aliyah, who wanted to speak. Uh, Yeah, just uh, regarding the comment uh, between the whale and the fish, I lived on the, uh, the Atlantic Ocean for a number of years, and I got to fish deep sea, and there is a fish that's capable of swallowing a man whole. And uh, ironically, it's called a grouper. But another name for it, a generic name for it, is Jewfish. I thought that was kind of hilarious. But uh, yeah, so there is that. Uh, Noel, when you were talking about the 70 Elohim, it put me in reference that had failed mankind. They failed to be counselors to man. It put me in mind the trees in the garden when Yahushua. Uh, Yahuwah, I'm sorry, tells Adam that he's given them every good fruit, every tree bearing good fruit in the garden to eat of. I've often looked at as in the scriptures that trees are generally indicating lineages, pictures of lineages, and uh, most often of men. Right? Uh, so I look at the tree of life being exactly that. I look at the tree of knowledge of good and evil is being exactly that. 
and the other fruit, uh, the other trees that are referred to uh, as fruit trees, if you will, would have been possibly these counselors that would have given uh, Adam counsel in his uh, his experience in the garden, preparing him to be a Malchizedek priest uh, to the nations, and uh, certainly out of failed. Eve failed, and it kind of goes without saying to me that these counselors failed. And then when you spoke to that tonight, that seemed to make that that uh, connect the dot connections for me. Don't know if it's the case, but it uh, sure closes it a little bit more for me. The question is: Is when did these? Here, can you turn off? Okay, I'll turn off your microphone for you because just because the echo. Oh, I did not turn it off. Okay, all right, um, and I just lost my train of thought. Oh yeah, so the question for me is when did they transgress these seventy elders? Because it's very clear from what I can see in Enoch and other places that the seventy elders over humanity failed. They had no love for the Torah. They weren't leading people in the instructions in righteous living. And But we don't see that in Scripture when it happened. We see when the Watchers came down, but those aren't the 70. Those are the 200. That's why I said that I don't think the 70 rule the earth anymore. I think they've been taken care of. I, that's where we're at in history, guys. Like We're beyond the Millennial Kingdom and uh, in the short season. And so now it's the 200 that are running the world, not the 70. And we've pointed this out in the past, but you, know, you can clearly see that the 200 nations on the earth... Um, and I think that there's also, interestingly enough, above ground, there's almost that we've seen 200 meteor craters, which I find really fascinating. I, I sometimes wonder if those, um, those so-called meteor craters is where the Watchers came out of their imprisoned tombs. They, they were held down there and they came out. Uh, one classic one is in Arizona. Um, so if you guys have ever been to that one. Anybody else? So, yeah, I have um, a comment to make about the um, Adam being made in the image of Yahuwah. I think it was Michael who posed the question that would we still be able to say that he was made in the image or we are made in the image considering the fallen nature? And would that be like the resurrected bodies? Um, and it reminded me of a scripture or a scripture. I, I don't know if you would call it scripture. I guess it's a, a verse in the life of adam and eve um and actually it's it's very interesting that's something that i've never really thought about before until i started reading the adam and eve writings that you know the difference between their their bodies after um after the fall and so i i find that very interesting of you know how how just they i don't even think they walked before they they weren't used their feet weren't used to touching the ground walking so there was a lot of differences like that but um Going back to what his original question was, is could could we say that that we are still of the image? Um, it reminded me of this cross-reference, which if I can read it, it's from the life of Adam and Eve. And this was after Adam was sick, and I think he was about to die. And then he sent Eve and Seth to um to get oil from from paradise. 
And then it says, so here it was like verse 37. It says, Seth and his mother went away to the gates of paradise. As they were walking there, suddenly appeared the serpent, the beast who attacked and bit Seth. When Eve saw this, she said, Alas, woe is me, for I am cursed because I did not keep the precepts of Yahuwah. Eve said to the serpent in a great voice, O cursed beast, why are you not afraid to cast yourself at the image of and it says God, so I'm not sure if that would have been Yahuwah or Elohim, but dare to fight against it. Why have your teeth prevailed? And so there she mentions, she's still calling it the image of Elohim because he's attacking Seth. And then continuing, it says, the beast answered in a human voice, O Eve, was our malice ever not against you? Isn't our anger against you? Tell me, Eve, how could you open your mouth to eat the fruit which um, Yahuwah Elohim commanded you not to eat? Now, however, you are not able to bear it if I should begin to reproach you. And then continuing, um, Seth mentions here again, and I'll skip down to where he mentions it. Verse 39, the beast said to Seth, behold, I am going away, just as you have said, from the face of the image of, of God, it says, which I assume was Elohim. So I find that interesting here that there's still, I mean, this is clearly this is Seth, so this would have been after their fallen nature, but they're still saying, um, you know, how dare you cast yourself at the face of the image of of Elohim or Yahuwah. So I find that interesting. So that could be, you know, maybe perhaps there's still, um, a, you know, an aspect of the image that we could still say that we're in the image of Yahuwah. I think there is definitely a difference. I don't think we're completely, you know, in the image. Um, so I think that's interesting. And then also, to add something else, um, there is a doctor, um, his name is Dr. Alfonso Manzo, and he does um he he did a study on the um Aleph Tov body system and which goes through and compares how there's different points on the body and they correspond with the Hebrew alphabet. Um he does a lot of um work with frequencies and stuff. It's actually very interesting, but I've been listening to some of his teachings and there was one, and I'm probably not gonna explain it um, you know, all the way like he does, but he talks about how they found each um each Hebrew letter corresponded with a different point of the body, except for one, and I believe it was the top, I believe it was the last letter. And he said he was kind of disappointed at first that he found that, but then when he realized the meaning of the letter top, and this was a while since I heard it, but I want to say it had something to do with the eternal, that he realized that, that perhaps that that was, you know, corresponded with our resurrected bodies or, you know, our pre-fall or maybe, you know, what it would be like after. So it's just interesting to kind of quantify, you know, a doctor that's done some studies and quantified perhaps maybe, maybe there's no way to, to kind of verify that here on this side of the firmament, but, you know, a, perhaps a, a difference there. But um, but that's what I wanted to add. Um, And everything else has been really good. I'm actually going to have to listen to this again because there is um, there was a lot here, but that's it. Thank you. So I think in I think in this discussion on being created in the image of of Elohim, you know, obviously there's there's something to to I believe there's something to what Michael was saying and something to what you're saying. That's you know there there's there's different ways. For example, in Scripture where it talks about us being sons of Elohim, and um, there's the resurrected sense. And then there's our present sense, and there's the you know fallen from grace, the you know the the glorified Adam. Uh, but here's a really interesting passage that was dropped in Genesis five three. Of course, we're not there yet, but 
Uh, this is from the Masoretic. And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. Um, and he tied this in with uh, Luke 3.38, which was this, uh, the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of Elohim. And then before that, and Elohim created Adam in his image. So it's, it's kind of like... Uh, the the son is like the father, right? We're like his father's image. So Adam is like the image of the Most High, and then we're taken after Adam. So there is there is a resemblance, um, obviously. I think that's yeah. And then Othiyachus posted it in here. There's a lot of passages being dropped in right now. Oh, let's read what uh, John Q says. Matthew. 13 verses 37 through 38 and he answering said to them he who is sowing the good seed is the son of adam um, and the field is the world and the seed the good seed these are the sons of the rain but the darnell are the sons of the wicked one um, and this is of course used in when you're dealing with the sons of yah versus the sons of satan the seed uh, there is this is I think specifically in that context, it's talking about the the spiritual sense that we are you're either the son of Satan or the son of um, of light. Um, but then I think there's a literal sense too. That's a whole different discussion. And then John one twelve says, Othiyah dropped the sin, but as many as received him, to them he gave the authority to become the children of Elohim, to those believing in his name. Now, we could I guess discuss that whether that is present tense or future tense based on salvation uh you know when you know we're not saved first and then we just live our life we're actually saved at the end um but then michael dropped in john one oh okay john 113 i guess that was the correction here who were born not of blood nor of the desire of flesh nor of the desire of men but of elohim so it could be similar to if you believe what paul says that we have a deposit of the spirit but we're not full of the spirit you know we're not fully in the image but we are partially i don't know and what you were saying about monzo i've looked into him as well he's very interesting he talks about uh um you split the body in half and there's frequencies throughout the body and it's basically he he believes you know there's pressure points he he believes you know the you know, the Eastern medicine took it from Yah, but uh, that you, you do a different pressure point on each side of the body, and that's how you can heal You can heal different elements. And he believes that's what um, laying on of hands was. So he's very an interesting uh, person. He was in the Way documentary, as I said, as well. And uh, Alfonso Manzo is the guy's name, if you guys want to look into him. I want to specify here from my point of view, just so everyone is clear, because when you talk about being born again, there is generally two views. I grew up as a generally as a Baptist, Baptist churches, and they're really big on, you know, that you you come to church the first time, you go to Sunday school and they ask you, So when were you born again? You're supposed to have like the date, you know, of when it happened, when you were born again. And uh they'll you know, and then they'll even when you get into the 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 Calvinism perspective of being born again, it's like, well, if you've been born again, you can't be unborn, right? So you're in it for good, you know. Uh, my perspective, and I could be wrong, and everyone's going to have their own view, 
my perspective on being born again is I would say I'm not born again yet. Now, immediately a Baptist hears that and goes, oh, proof, he's not saved. You know, he's not born again. Um, no, I have experienced the Ruach HaKadosh and been filled with the Ruach and, you know, all the, you know, all these different things. My perspective on being born again is that it happens at the resurrection. The resurrection is the born again into the spiritual body. Uh, it's interesting, you you know, that you, you talk about being born of water and of spirit. And you know, it's, it's, you know, when you're born the first time physically, uh, you're born out of water. And uh, we're still actually in a womb. The firmament above us is a womb. The earth is a womb. And guess what, guys? There's water. It's kind of interesting. You have to go through the water, right? Just like uh, the first time. But it, my perspective, and I, I think Michael is, is there as well. I, I won't speak for him. But uh, the, the resurrection specifically is what I look for. That is my salvation moment. Like when I, like I've made it. I, I've resurrected. I, I, I fought the good fought. I, you know, finished the race and I've resurrected. Um, and that is my new body. So that is being literally born again. Um, that's just my perspective. So, and with your take on that, we're in the matrix womb right now, and we have either have to be born, to be born again. Yeah, and that's that's the crazy thing. We are guys. We are literally like in the movie The Matrix. We are like in that scene where they're all plugged in. Like we, everybody is, um, everybody is born. Every okay, no, let me back up. Everybody dies once. Um, not everybody is born twice. And uh, so our hope is that, you know, we will be born again after we die, uh, literally, that, you know, we are we are taken. Now, obviously, I don't believe that anybody goes to Sheol now, the righteous, um, uh, Leviathan, so on and so forth. Those teeth have been shattered and the gates of Sheol have been shattered. And uh, I pointed this out many times. You know, I used to be a gun hole gut die diehard soul sleeper like you you die you you're, you're going to sleep you're you got you're going to sleep you're not gonna you're, you're going unconscious until that trumpet blasts and you you know you wake up but i i think that that moment has passed the soul sleeping that was in the past and uh we when you die you go into the presence of uh, paradise and that comes according to you know all these canonical extra canonical books i've read mm-hmm.